Hey, 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 everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Made Radio. I hope you're doing magnificently, my friends, my boon companions in this journey to truth. Please don't forget to help out the show at freedomainradio.com slash donate. Follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux and use our affiliate link, if you will, for some shopping you have to do at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Wow, what a set of calls tonight. The first caller was a woman who wanted to know whether... It was worth avoiding public school for her kids, and her husband was supposed to be there. Turns out he couldn't make it, but we had a very deep conversation about why she gets so angry at her son uh, in particular, and a deep family history call there. Second caller was a victim of diversity, a white male businessman who has provided excellent service to a particular client for many years, who then was told he was no longer welcome to provide those services because he was not a minority owned business or a woman, owned business, and we talked about that. The third caller sent to us pretty much an alphabet soup of syllogisms, which I actually appreciate. It's a good exercise to break an argument down in that way. But he felt that identity is a violation of the non-aggression principle, and we chewed through the definitions and the arguments and had a very productive conversation, I think. Now the fourth caller. Yes, best for last, perhaps. The fourth caller is a former radical leftist. And he left the movement after growing concerns about its tendencies towards violence. And we started, of course, not necessarily with the ideology, but with the personal history, which was explosive and highly revelatory. And we talked about what goes on in these organizations, how they operate, how they recruit, how they groom. Very, very important information to have in this growing conflict which still remains largely in the realm of free speech, but may not stay there forever. So I hope you will really, really listen to that. And thanks, everyone, so much for your support. All right. Well, first today we have Chrissy. And Chrissy was going to call in with her husband, but unfortunately he couldn't make it today. She said, I am struggling with my attempt to avoid the public school system, Catholic included, while finances are tight. I've been a stay-at-home mom for five years, raising a hyper soon-to-be six-year-old boy and a kind four-year-old girl. As of last month, our finances became strained since we unexpectedly are carrying two mortgages. Our plans to place both children in private school may have to be canceled. My plan to only be at work while the kids are at school may also have to change to me working full-time hours and the kids moving from school to aftercare. I'm very frugal with the money I spend. I feel my husband is more of a spender than I am, but there are certain expenses he is unwilling to cut. What more can I sacrifice to truly put my kids first? How can I convey to my husband that we both don't need to be chasing finances while finances are tight? That's from Chrissy. Hey, Chrissy, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Um, I'm sorry that your husband couldn't make it. He was invited, but something came up. Um, how are you ending up with the two mortgages? Uh, So um, it's never happened to us before. We've sold a lot of homes since we've been married in, the, in our nine years together. Um, and that's how we've been also making more so, money. Sold a but, lot of uh, what? Houses, sorry. Oh, okay. So you said phones. <laughs> okay. <laughs> houses. Got it. All right. Sold a lot of houses. <laughs> yeah. So we'd buy it at a low price or in a good market that we saw was climbing, put some money into it, sell it again. Um, it's always worked out for us. Uh, recently, yeah, I mean, I it's, uh, it's, you know, Chinese people need a place not to live as well. So yeah. that's important. <laughs> right. So um, 
being Canadian, you understand this, but maybe Americans don't know that the housing market just changed. Um, some law, uh, new regulations came through in end of May, beginning of June, and that was to deter foreign buyers. So right away, the housing market seized up and we sold two weeks after that happened. So our expectation for what it would sell for was um, about 150000 less. Nevertheless, even though the buyer agreed upon that price, the housing market regulations continued to draw, like, affect the market so they were dropping further. So today, as it sits, we expect it's probably going to sell another 100000 less than that. When they came, like, when it came to closing, we were supposed to sit at the table and our lawyer prepared the papers and they never showed up. So what they're doing is completely illegal. They disappeared on us. They, it's unfortunate. Um, we will be suing them with a litigation lawyer. But in the meantime, we have to get the house ready for sale again, this time with nobody living in it, and put it back on the market and accept a lower price than what we paid for the new house. Now, the, the regulations you're we'll talking about, sorry to interrupt, the regulations you're talking about, they were, I know that there's some stuff out in Vancouver and they put a tax on um, condos that are not inhabited. I mean, some crazy number. I was talking to someone <laughs> from Vancouver the other day. Some crazy number of condos are bought as investment by foreign buyers, largely Chinese, and not mm -hmm. lived in. Is, is it those regulations? Is it other ones? Um. Yeah, they're trying to deter any foreign buyers. So there's some of that. I think that I don't know, honestly, all of the different ones. Mm. I just know that some of it is going to be like, if they know you're not a citizen, then they're going to make you pay more tax on land transfer or acquiring or whatever, whatever they can do to dissuade foreign buyers so that Canadian buyers can get into the market. Right. Like at the end of the day, it's positive for younger families and, and first-time buyers that are Canadian who would never be able to afford a home. So, uh, well, and it just shows you how things like um, zoning and, and restrictions on building houses uh, leads to more regulations because there's an undersupply of houses. And of course, what, 400,000 immigrants crashing into Canada every year driving up the price of housing. So you've got these government programs called zoning and immigration, which then result in more government programs called suppress foreign buyers, which, you know, just makes everything such a roller coaster. Yeah. So it's good for Canadians. I'm not for or against the regulations. I don't know enough about them. I don't have the time to research. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, this is the first time we've been caught up in all of this. Um, we were selling a house that was in a market that was growing so rapidly that we had to put our money there, even though we didn't want to live in that community. We just knew that it was like such a good bet, I guess. <laughs> and although it grew all that, uh, that amount, we, um, we didn't get out soon enough. And so you were riding a wave. Yeah. And we knew it was a wave. <laughs> no, you knew it was a wave. Um, it, but, you know, I, I don't want to use the term flipping because that sounds kind of derogatory, you know, like flipping houses and so oh, on. No. But you weren't it's putting fun. a lot of value <laughs> add. You were acquiring houses. You were waiting for the price to go up and then you were selling them, right? No, we were, we were doing a lot of, uh, like, construction and remodeling. We, we were flipping. It's okay. fine. Right. <laughs> it's not the wrong story to me. But it wouldn't have um, been um, it wouldn't have been as valuable if the general house prices weren't going up, right? Right. 
Right. Yeah. Because, that I mean, for you was- for you to buy and to renovate doesn't make a whole lot of sense relative to, like, in a more free market environment. It wouldn't make a hell of a lot, a lot of sense relative to someone just buying a place and putting the stuff in that they wanted, right? Um, well, so the, the houses we acquired was very carefully selected. So it had to be in a market that was growing, that we knew was going to double in price in the next year, or, like, a lot of specifics to the neighborhood. So we have been moving neighborhoods for this reason, because you could see when it was coming up. Right. That answers. And did you make some good money from doing this? Yeah. Over the, t- like, over time. So, so you okay. have some savings, right? <laughs> well, we don't have like savings in the bank, but we have, we're safe for RSPs. Our kids can all go to school and they're five and, and four. So, you know, they're quite a while away from it, but we have life insurance. We have no, but what I mean is uh, you you had significant, you could say sort of windfall profits, but in any kind of situation where you're getting excessive profit, that's not mm-hmm. going to last, right? Right. And so, excessive is one of these socialistic terms. I don't mean that at all, but uh, I just mean that where you're in an environment where prices are rising faster than can be sustained, at some point there's going to be a crash. So I'm going to assume you put some money aside for when things didn't work out because something like this was going to happen, right? Sooner or later, housing market in Canada is going to correct and it's going to be a pretty brutal thing. Right. Um, So this is kind of a secondary form of income. Our main form of income is that my husband uh, owns his own business and it's rapidly growing into more and more locations and that's doing well. So the flipping thing is kind of a secondary income because... Um, it was, I don't know how to explain it. No, that's fine. So I just, I I get a general sense of the family finances, Chrissy. So help help me, sorry, help me understand. Just give me a ballpark figure of how much gross you might be likely to make from working full time. Just roughly. I don't need anything down to the last dollar. Um, if I were to work full time now, I'm thinking between, what I'm being offered right now, taking some interviews is between 32,000, which we feel is too low to 42,000. I think right. that's generally like what I could make. So that would be your cost before school, after yeah. school, care, clothing, yeah. commuting, the need for a second car, maybe you already have one, yeah. and taxes. Right. So how would you be making any money? I don't know. <laughs> so why, why, I don't understand why you'd want to go to work I mean, maybe if you were making, I don't know, some crazy quarter million dollars a year, well, okay, then you can hire 12 nannies or whatever, I don't know, right? But but um, if you're going to be making 32 to 40K Canadian, oh, just, okay. just want to remind everyone, <laughs> Canadian, uh, then That's I don't see how on earth it's going to be economically worthwhile to put your kids in school. I don't see how either, but uh, I don't know. Then we've solved our problem then, haven't we? <laughs> okay, goodbye. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I think it's just my husband's business is seasonal sometimes and he is a good saver, but, uh, he just, I think emotionally he feels like if I had just a steady income, even if it's a very little bit, even if I could just pay for the house taxes or pay for the lights or just one element. So basically, okay. I don't know if it's a feminism thing. No, no, no. Okay, forget all this emotional crap, because we're just dealing with a spreadsheet here, okay? I'm sorry to be so abrupt, but uh, 
Okay, so let's just make it easy. You get you get 40K a year, right? So that's, uh, I don't know what, 900 bucks a week or something like that. So, you know, 3,500 uh, or so. I just, off the top of my head, 3,500 or so a month, right? And you're going to be paying, I don't know, 1,500 of that in taxes, leaving you, I don't know, 20 to 2,500 a month. You've got two kids in private school. That's going to be eight 900 bucks a month. You're done. Right. Like, if concern is for future income, then having you stay home and getting rid of a second car if you don't need it. I mean, if depending on where you are relative to public transit, I grew up, I didn't have a car until I was in my 30s. I mean, no car in my family when we grew up, we survived. And so, so, so you're, hang on, so you're, you're going to be exposing yourself to a significant future liability if you want two kids in private school because they're going to get embedded in that school. That's how their education is going to go. That's where their friendships are going to sprout up. And then if you need mm-hmm. to change that at some point in the future, like let's say you lose your job or his business slows down, well, you still have this like, you know, 1500 to two grand a month after tax burn of two kids in private school. And it's going to be pretty heartbreaking to have to change that if family circumstances change. Whereas if you're home, you have that flexibility. You're not signing up for that, you know, 15 years of 2K a month uh, stuff for 10, 10 uh, months a year, right? So, if I'm home, you're saying if I'm home without the private school? Yeah. Well, if you're home, sending your kids to private school doesn't make much sense. So certainly, I'm sure you're, if you listen to this show, you're probably smart enough to educate them through the end of university. But, you know, you can certainly handle it uh, through junior high if you need to, right? Right. Uh, that's, so that, okay. That's like a no-go for my husband. He doesn't believe in homeschooling at all. He has this massive stigma against it, and I can't. I haven't been able to break down that wall, and I don't know why. Yeah, see, t- tell me why he's not here, Chrissy. <laughs> he's uh, fixing the other house. He said, uh, like... Um, so that's a higher priority than this. Right. <laughs> I know it's not imminently sold, because you're just talking about legal action, and Lord knows the yeah. legal system moves like slow molasses on a frozen right. ass's leg. <laughs> so, <sighs> so this is nothing imminent, so he chose to go and do that rather than stay here, which I think is important. Because no, this is important well, stuff, right? So what the hell is he doing somewhere else? He's trying to fix it for, like, the real estate agents are coming to take photos tomorrow, mm. and then it's being relisted. So he's on a deadline for that. Right. But, yeah. So what, what does it mean? Like, so I don't, like, I don't, Sorry. maybe I have a unique marriage, Chrissy, maybe. Okay. Maybe I'm way off uh, the beaten path as far as this goes. I don't know how one person in a marriage gets to lay down the law for the other person. I don't believe in homeschooling. No, 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 I've seen it. Well, it's not valid. Well, the studies show that it is. Well, no, like I don't, I don't have that. And my wife doesn't have that grenade, so to speak, you know. No, like I don't, how does, how does that work? Does he just get to say no to stuff that affects your entire parenting and stuff? Um, so we, <laughs> we based it off hockey being Canadians. We have this kind of rule between us that the no wins. So whoever says no, that's who wins our, okay. Because it, it so you can say, no, no, I'm not going to work. Oh, look, <laughs> you've just solved the whole problem. Uh-huh. Not an argument. Okay. <laughs> well, I think that it comes from, if you're uncomfortable, we can't make the other one uncomfortable, but... But he's not, you're not asking him to homeschool. You'd be homeschooling, right? Right. So 
it's not i mean his day is relatively unaffected right right he gets up he goes to work you uh take care of the kids and you enjoy your parenting time with them and you know homeschooling man you can get a lot of education in in, in a, a very time. short amount of time you know you think of kids in in a public or private school think of kids in a school you know how much concentrated time do they get from the teacher every day 20 minutes 25 yeah. minutes maybe 30 minutes and then there's a lot of you know for guys at Shuffle. least you know putting <laughs> you know putting those markers together in a row and having sword fights in the corner hoping no one's going to notice whereas if you're home and schooling you can really get concentrated time and you can also get time when you're telling stories you can also you know flip through the newspaper or magazine and talk about what's going on in the world you can go to a wide variety of websites to have them take quizzes and so on you know there's a i think there's a lot more quality education that can go on at home without all of that freaky deaky hey let's teach you about anal sex when you're nine stuff if, if you think <laughs> nine is now too old these days so right. you know it's it's your life that he's trying to organize with his no. Surely the person whose life is most affected gets a little bit more of a say. Am I, am I wrong? I didn't, I didn't form that argument. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. Well, would you rather um, be working for some place for 35K a year or would you rather be showing the wonders like, of the world to your children? Every part of me thinks that's wrong. So, like, unfortunately, I think the other thing is there's a little bit of a bait and switch with us because when I got married, I thought I was a feminist and, you know, even like we're going to have kids and I'm going to work because I don't want you to work too hard. I'm going to be dependent on uh, man. Right. Yeah. I'm going to no, make the bad. courts dependent on, I'm going <laughs> to make him dependent on fending me for the formula. Okay. Well, of course, the I fact that you're not that kind of feminist that. anymore, I'm sure he doesn't want to change that part of things, right? Right. Oh, no. I mean, this last year, especially like I... I don't know. Our relationship got a lot better because I started to, I don't know. I think it was because of Jordan Peterson. But anyway, <laughs> I just started to like appreciate it more and, you know, really push myself into like, this is my role, being at home, taking care of my husband and my kids. And, yeah, he wanted and he to have see, kids. He, feels right? it. he wanted to have kids, I assume. You didn't like uh, oopsie him twice, right? <laughs> so, no. So he wanted to have kids. <laughs> and, you know, um, his his life... His life is a working... Like, there's a reason why feminists want women to go work outside the home. It's because if you're a career feminist, you're, you're a career woman, and you're not married, then you don't have someone organizing your household for you, so you really have a tough time competing with men. This is one of the reasons why they're always trying to convince their male colleagues or competitors' wives to go work. Because when both of you are working and there are kids in the picture, your life becomes crap. Crap. I mean, you know how it works. You blast it out. You know, you never get enough sleep because you never have enough time to do everything. And you get out of bed, you know, 7, 7.30 in the morning. Your kids are tired. They've been, you know, maybe they want to get up in the morning. Everything. Yeah, and you got to drag them up. you got to you know, snap them. you got to get them ready for the bus or drop them off or whatever it is. And, you know, there's a big mess everywhere. And then you've got to run off to work and you're bored and you're tired and you're missing your kids. And then you're worrying how they're doing. And every time the phone rings, it's like, oh, is there a problem at the daycare? Is there a problem at the school? Is there a mean kid around? Is there a mean teacher? Is something bad going on? Is there a fight? Is there a problem? Is my son, <laughs> as you point out, kind of hyper? Is he considered too hyper? Are they going to want to drug yes. him? Uh, and, and then yeah. you, you, you barrel out of work. And Lord, Lord, Lord forbid, you're actually in the middle of something at like 450 
three or something like that or you're in a meeting and you got to sweat it out and you got to battle traffic and it's slow and you got to go and pick up your kids uh, from the daycare and if you're late it's a big problem and then you got to get home and then you've got to get them unpacked and you're trying to ask them how their day was and everyone's kind of spaced out and disconnected then you got to throw some food at them get them bathed and get them to bed it sucks i've seen yeah. it up close chrissy it's a terrible terrible life okay i don't want to do it i don't i don't know he, okay, so he his argument sometimes is that um, well he comes home late he he has the kind of job that would not support a two income like a working wife like he needs me at home he doesn't want to admit it maybe but he works all sorts of hours there's he's never available to like watch the kids ever yeah so, if you have, if you have two people and heaven forbid a kid is sick and they mm-hmm. will be mm-hmm. right. I mean, there's a certain phase where kids go through and, you know, they, they, you open the window upstairs and they get a cold in the basement, you know, it's just the way it goes. And if your husband has a kind of non-flexible job and you have a kind of non-flexible job, the children will pay the price. But sorry, Chrissy, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, like what I mentioned, but (laughs) he, you're saying that I don't, that he thinks I should work and then can't remember. But what, why? <laughs> it's not, it's not going to make you any money. It makes your life more complicated and other people end up raising your kids. I don't understand. Like, help me understand yeah. the logic here. The, it makes no oh, sense oh. to me at all. I remember he was, I was going to say like, it's, he, I think he has this uh, idea of how it's going to be because of TV or whatever, but he grew up in a home where his mom was always there when he was home. When he went to school, she volunteered. And does and he I like his mother, home. Chrissy? Yeah. Oh, like, so two of them should be an example for how mothers and children should be. Beautiful. They're, so he yeah. <laughs> had the wonderful example of a stay-at-home mom, but his children, you got to go to work, right. right? And I had a stay-at-home mom, but we don't have a good relationship. So I think, uh, I don't know, I think that's his fear, or he thinks that I'm repeating her patterns. He, um, my parents had, at one point, bought a homeschooling program for some of my siblings, and didn't teach them so they were left to kind of learn on their own and that did not work so i think that also adds to his perception that homeschooling doesn't work because in the end my siblings had to go back to the public system wait because Uh, anecdote yeah but well my parents were neglectful at the end of the day they neglected doing the stay-at-home thing very uh, positively they neglected doing homeschooling positively but that's just one example, and I don't know. I guess it's the closest one or the only. Does he think that you're better than that? Um, no, maybe. Like one of his arguments he brings up is that oh, because he comes home late, and I and I've never like I'll have a a moment where I can see adults alone once every three or four months. Like it's very infrequent. Um, so. <laughs> So he comes home late. I'm tired. I, I'm snapping at the kids, and I don't want to be that type of parent. I'm attempting to be a peaceful parent as much as I can. Wait, um, sorry, he's talking about himself. No, me. You would come comes, home late and be no, snapping he comes at the home kids. Late, he comes home late generally, like yeah. every night. He's home late. He's just coming in for dinner. Um, the kids are having dinner, or we're starting dinner, and maybe like my son is jumping on the couches, and I'm like you know, get off the couch, sit down. I've already asked you that, you know, I'm at that point in the night where I'm repetitive and I'm not 
speaking in my kindest voice <laughs> and anything to me that, you know, I'm not, if, if I stayed out of the house and I worked the whole day, then when I see them, I would appreciate them and I wouldn't be so snippy and angry. <laughs> I think I'm thinking I'd just be more tired and angry and I wouldn't get all the good stuff that we do in the day. Like, Wait, so you, you would be more tired if you had a job and you were a parent than if you were just a parent. Right, but he for some reason he thinks that we'd have better quality time because there'd be less of it. So I would try to really give it my all. <laughs> I don't know. I does, think it's um, a bad does, argument. <laughs> um, does he, how often do you get this sort of snippy and angry stuff going on? Just every evening. <laughs> every day? Come visit. on, Chrissy. What are you doing? I'm tired. I don't know. And what are you tired of? Well, I think it's I think it's just physically my energy level. My son has a lot of energy. He's uh, we took him to the pediatrician, and he's there. He's ADHD, ADHD, they say. And I haven't. And now I've I'm in between doctors, so I haven't done anything about it. But the suggestion is eventually he'll have to be on some kind of medication. However, during the day, we can talk about electronics, math, science, like he's five years old. He can do really incredible things for someone his age because we do it So he's very intelligent. Yeah, but he also doesn't have to sit still while we do it. Like I can teach him math by drawing on the walls in the bathroom. My daughter thinks by walking. She thinks by walking. If we're having an intense conversation about something deep or or challenging intellectually, I mean, she'll leave footprints on the ceiling. She just gets up and walks. And I'm I'm the same way. You know, I write now on a treadmill. I've written while walking for years. I do my show standing up. Uh, I find that when I sit, my whole energy collapses in like an old busted tent. So I think think that this is what pulls me towards the... Okay, so in my mind, I've excluded the chance of doing homeschooling because my husband thinks I'm not qualified to do it at the end of the day. He has this um, stigma against moms that anyone who's in the school system is more highly educated than just any mom off the street. I guess that's the big first hurdle he has. And then the second hurdle. You taught your kids how to read. I, I taught them. I mean, he's learning to read. He could, he could read in junior kindergarten. Does he think that teaching kids multiplication or division is more complicated than teaching them how to read? I, I would, yeah, I guess he does because it's next in the school lineup, right? Right. I want to get back to your snappiness. Okay. So (laughs) I, on my side, trying to deal with that, I've. I tried to see if it was hormonal, and I went to um, a very how do I do this? I went to kind of uh, out of the normal way of doing things. So there's um, some fertility doctors who can usually help you achieve pregnancy. But I overheard another lady who had fertility problems explaining that they do it through managing your hormones, and that they find sometimes like that's women with similar cycles have uh, a, a proclivity to cancers and, and so that they, in this way, like they, they, they monitor it and they solve problems. So I, I noticed because I am not taking birth control and um, that, and I, I 
I have we avoid. Okay. You've only had I'm two. I think I'm going to have to stop you. Okay. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. I'm asking you a fairly direct question, and okay. I think I've had now three or four massive avoidances and excuses. Okay. My son is hyper. He might have ADHD. I might need to drug him. I'm tired. It could be my hormones. Come on. Yeah. Come on. You know, this is a philosophy show where you got to take ownership for what you do. Okay. Right? Okay. So why do you have permission? <laughs> why do you yeah. give yourself permission to be snippy and angry? You, you've given me a lot of excuses, which guarantees that the behavior is going to continue. And Chrissy, the reason I'm asking you this is yeah. because I want you to be able to stay home. But if you're sitting okay. and angry with your kids, if your husband comes home, you say he comes home late. It's not late if he's always late. It's just the new on time, right? But if he comes home and he sees you snapping with the kids, that's not going to be easy to sell him on homeschooling, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay, so sure. the question I have is... If you were at work and you were tired, would you be snippy and snappy and angry at your boss? No. So you can change it. You can control it, right? My patience, yeah. I mean, to take a silly example, if a cop knocked on the door because you'd left your garage door open or something, you'd be like, officer, I'm busy. <laughs> okay, yeah. You understand? Yeah. So you can control this behavior. My question is, why don't you? I've been trying to answer that. I No, no, no. You're specifically trying to not answer it. <laughs> you're specifically <laughs> trying to give me a no free will argument. It's my no, son's no, fault. It's my hormones' that. fault. It's right? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, well, I read that it's hard to give up the anger because you get something out of it. And I don't know what I'm getting out of it. Do you? I don't know. Hmm. There must be something that... I don't know. Well, you said that, that you don't have a great relationship with your mother. Was your mother this way, snippy and angry? Yes. Yeah, and I, I don't think so I remember that. it may not be that. quite as complicated as you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like I don't remember her being that way, but as soon as I say it, I can hear her voice, and then all these memories kind of come back, if that makes sense. Right. So this is your model for parenting? Yes. And have you rejected that model for parenting? I guess not, if you're still doing it, right? Yeah, like mentally, I'm like every day I'm not doing that, can't do that, and then I, it, I have a really good example of like my older sister who grew up in the same situation and she has completely not done it. So, well, it sounds to me, Chrissy. Yeah. And discard everything I say that doesn't fit. But it sounds to me, Chrissy, that unmourned behavior is much easier to repeat. If you don't know how much your mom's anger hurt you, then it's going to be a lot easier to reproduce it against your children because without empathizing with yourself, you can't empathize with them. Oh. Okay. Because you say you can't remember it, but you hear it in your voice when you do it, right? Right. So what do you mean you can't remember it? If she did it a lot to the point where you hear it and it's influencing your behavior strongly then it must have happened a lot, right? You say it happens to you daily, right? But you can't uh, remember your mother doing it to you at all? Well, there's this funny thing. Like, uh, she used to, when we were kids, she used to say everything was my dad's fault. So <laughs> he was always away. Do you know away. why I'm laughing? Because, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because for you, your anger man. was everything else's fault. 
your hormones, <laughs> your tiredness, your your hyper child, your whatever, right? Okay, yeah. So, so when I kind of went off to call, like I, I, she had this way of saying like she loves us, but she has to do this because it's her, my dad is going to be angry, or she has to yell at us because he's going to come home, or and I don't. Now that I have more of a relationship with him as an adult, I don't think he was this way. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's weird. And then, so when I left, like, when I left and went off to college, I kind of felt like, oh, you know, I have this great relationship with my mom. I always thought that we had a really good relationship. And, um, I don't know. And, I don't know what else to say about that. I don't, I, I don't know if I kind of forgot that she um, was like so aggressive, like, and then, uh, if someone says something, then I, I remember it, but I don't, but have you not, have you not talked about this with your sister? Um, no, I have my sister when she, when she was having her kids and got married, she kind of just isolated herself completely. Well, I didn't understand why she did it. Well, what do you and mean? now no, that no, no. she didn't, she didn't isolate herself completely. I would assume she was. She had a husband, right? She had. She had a kid. She may have had oh, other yeah, friends in the neighborhood. What you mean is that she didn't spend time with you and your mom. Is that right? And all of we had like we have a very kind of overbearing family. Lots of aunts and everybody. And she cut that family out. Of, so she was alone with her. Okay, her hang on, hang on. So family. we got to we got to take this slowly, right? Okay. Step at a time. So your sister has been able to overcome the bad temper that might have been implanted by your mom, right? Right. And she did that by not exposing herself to the source of the problem, which could be your mom, right? Right. And her siblings. They're, they're very similar. My mom and her siblings are all, are all like, I don't know, okay. like little clones right. of each other. <laughs> so, so there's one example, right? Like, you know, if you have a bad habit to break, you can't really as far as I understand it, the, the perceived wisdom or the common wisdom is don't spend time around people who manifest that habit. Like if you want to quit drinking, stop hanging around people who drink all the time. If you want to quit smoking, stop hanging around with people who smoke all the time and that kind of stuff, right? Like you have to change your environment if you want to yeah, change your habit, so. right? Right. And have you ever asked your sister how she was able to overcome this legacy of temper? She said she... She saw something, uh, something on TV, and and she realized that was her kind of thing, and then she said to me, like she told me, just act like they're not your kids. Don't don't treat them like they belong to you, like they're someone else's that you're taking care of. Huh. If that makes sense. Right. Did you talk to her about her decision to not see your mom or the aunts and uncles? After she had her child, um, I'm starting to talk to her now. Like now, she's coming back into my life because she realizes that I'm seeing the other side of things. So while she was not a part of the group, the group think of this angry family, <laughs> she was talked about a lot, and everybody made her out to be like either making fun of her or. Uh, it just it's a lot of like rumors there it's a very there's a lot of females in this family <laughs> there's not a lot of males and so you get all that catty talking about each other all the time if you make a mistake they all have to discuss it and make sure that the group thinks you're doing something right or wrong and if you don't 
do what they say, then it kind of ostracized. So I believed a lot of things about her so, that I didn't some, know about. Some bullies, right? Yeah. It's all, even, yeah, at the end of the day, the parenting style was bullying too. I don't know. You mean your mom's parenting style? Yeah, I think so. So let me ask you this, Chrissy. Let's say I'm your son. Right. And my question to you is, what percentage of the day that he spends with you does he experience as positive, and what percentage of the day that he spends with you does he experience as negative? And by negative, I don't mean like he fell down and bumped himself or whatever, but that you have a negative reaction to something or him. So, to think about just a regular day. I don't think it's, I would think the negative would be, I want to say like 30%. I don't think I'm angry all the time. I think it's just, just the end. I don't know. So 30%? Yeah. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. I hate to say it. I mean, I got to be blunt with you, but that's terrible. Okay. How many hours a night does your son sleep? Um, about 10. 10 hours? Yeah. Okay. So we've got 14 hours of wakefulness. Maybe he naps a little bit during the day. I mean, he may be past that now. No, he's past it, yeah. So he's, he's got 14 hours of wakefulness, right? Right. So... That's over four, well, sorry, that is, yeah, that's over four hours of negative, like experiencing you being negative, right? Right. Four hours a day. That's too much. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine... Sorry, you said he was asleep for 10 hours a day? Sorry, three and a half hours, is it? Uh, no, hang on a sec. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I just had a brain fart with regards to the math. So 14 <laughs> times 0.3, there we go. Yeah, 4.2 hours. So 4.2 hours. Um, so can you imagine being on a date for three <laughs> hours and one of the hour that you were on a date, the man was having a, a negative reaction to you? It's like tearing you down, Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine a 90-minute movie, a third of which you hated? <laughs> that would be easier to deal with than a mean mom. <laughs> Is it different yeah. for your girl? Yeah, it's a lot different. It's because she's she's just calmer. Like, a lot of me yelling at him, I, I'm scared, honestly. Like, he's jumping off something, or I think he's going to get hurt, and I'm, I'm just... Like, stop it. I already said stop it, you know? I want you to understand something, Chrissy. Mm -hmm. For your son, your negativity is close to a full-time job for him. It's almost 30 hours a week. Right. I don't think you get it. Yeah, it's like the worst work environment of your life. Well, imagine if you go to a work and your boss is negative or or angry or snappy for 30 hours a week. 
you wouldn't work there again. <laughs> you know, maybe he's hyper. I don't know. Maybe he's scared. Maybe he's nervous. Maybe he's trying to please you. Because it's an astonishing amount of time, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking like um, over 120 hours a month that he experiences your negativity. Right. Right? Two months solid out of the year, 24-7. Two months solid, he's experiencing your negativity, right? Yeah. I still don't think you're getting it. No, I get it. It's too much. Kids calm down when they feel treasured. Kids calm down when they feel secure. Kids calm down when they feel that they are a positive and beloved part of the family structure. Mm-hmm. And of course, I understand that your moodiness is scattered throughout the day, right? Oh. Uh. It's not like you concentrate it, you know, 4.2 hours, starting at noon and ending at 4.20, right? <laughs> I feel like it's only in the evening, honestly. Uh, in the day, we, we don't have as much um, time constraints. I don't know. What are the time constraints in the evening? Just like, you get the dinner ready, get, um, you know, get the meeting, get them to bed. As soon as, like, it's, Six o'clock, we have everything lined up, like one thing after the other. So they have a dinner, they're in the bath, they're in the beds, they're reading their stories. Like by the end of it, I sing them to sleep and everyone's happy and then good night. No, but, but it, is it that frustrating time sort of from six to eight or whatever it is? Is that the frustrating time? Yeah, I think so. Why? <laughs> it feels like maybe because I'm anticipating a fight, so it just... Yeah, but why why is there a fight? What is the time constraint? It's not coming from outside. It's not like you've got a delivery that you've got to make, right? So where is the constraint? Where is the tension coming from? I don't know. I just think they have to be embedded in time because otherwise then, like, we don't have any, like, uh, I guess it's the only time I can spend with my husband as after he's asleep at well, sure, sure, I understand all of that. I'm sorry to interrupt again. But I'm sure your husband would rather spend time with you when you hadn't been angry and snappy with your kids right beforehand, right? Yeah, that's for sure. Right, so if your husband has the choice, he'd say, well, I'd rather have an hour and a half with you in a happy and content mood than two hours with you right after you've spent two hours snapping at the kids. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is it that your husband has the need for you to have the kids in bed by a certain time because he's coming home late? Like, is there something outside you and your kids that's causing this time pressure? Um, he, I think I think that also the pressure is, like, sometimes my husband's coming home and he's snappy. And he's not snapping at the kids, right? But he's just so done. Like, the, the days are long and hard on him. So I think that I'm putting this pressure that they have to be perfect when he comes home. <laughs> exactly what I'm trying to do is the exact opposite of what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm trying to make everything, I don't know. I'm trying to make everything go smoothly. The search for perfection is all very well, but to look for heaven 
is to live here in hell. Right, there's, there's nothing as hellish as the drive for perfection, right? Okay, yeah. So what are the consequences? What negative things happen if things aren't perfect with regards to the bedtime? So I, I think there's like a sweet spot. If I can't get them down, then they, they, are, they get hyper that they're up late. And then it's like I get stuck in the room or I try and sleep, lay down and like sneak out when they're sleeping. And then I fall asleep and I miss everything after that. Have you noticed that when you're tense with them, that it takes longer for them to get to sleep? Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I think by the time we get into the jam, I kind of calm down because I know it's the end. But the tension's more like through dinner and the bath and brushing teeth. Right. I usually don't, yeah, I usually don't get to... I, I like the routine. I think they understand it, but they kind of, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. They kind of taunt me through it. Like they're just pushing the borders a little bit. Like, yeah. You know, that's the job, right? For kids. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah. No, because here's the thing. You're kind of in the middle here, Chrissy. Here's where I put on my annoying lecture hat, all right? Okay. So you're kind of in the middle here. You have committed to peaceful parenting, but you have allowed yourself irritated parenting right <laughs> no 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 backsliding <laughs> that is the worst of both worlds see if you're a tyrant if the kids are just terrified of you then you have a certain amount of authority in the moment that may work right but you have to escalate your aggression to the point where they're going to thumb down so much that it's brutal and soul-searing and destructive of their individuality and so on right Right. So if you've made the commitment, you say, well, I'm not going to call them names. I'm not going to hit them. I'm not going to yell at them from, you know, noon till midnight. Then you said, okay, peaceful parenting. But peaceful parenting means peaceful parenting. It doesn't mean peaceful parenting with a light smattering of snarling. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, yeah, so. It's all kissing, no biting. <laughs> right? And if you make that commitment... then you are saying no to all of the bullying habits that may have been inculcated in you by your upbringing that you can't remember. And the fact that you can't remember them again. Talk about this stuff with your mom. Talk about it with your sister. Try and exhume and examine your childhood. Because if you can't remember your childhood, but you sound just like your mom in your own ears, it means that this is a history unexamined that's coming back to life, right? Right. Well, I... And now I'm talking to my sister. If I talk to my mom, she denies it or she makes tons of excuses. So well, then you and your sister get sit down with your mom and talk about it together. Because if you both remember something, it's going to be a little bit harder for her to do what? Yes, that's right. Make up excuses. <laughs> or avoidance. Or, for, you know, if you both remember something, it's going to be tougher. So like, what are the, what's the end we're trying to get to? Like, so we get her and tell her that this has happened and she just... If she just denies and denies, is there a point where you just walk away and leave it? Or what do you do? <laughs> What's the end? I don't understand how this ends. What do you mean? What You mean if you are confronting your mom or talking to your mom about things that happened and she just denies, denies, denies? Correct, yeah. You, you tell her that it's very destructive and painful for you that she's denying. <laughs> and uh, you find out how much your mom cares about you, frankly. Well, I don't think a lot. <laughs> 
because in the past I've confronted her and she just like in no uncertain terms has told me that she likes other people more than me and she's a bully she says horrible things so I'm I'm kind of at the point where I don't I don't want to talk to her anymore <laughs> right I'm sorry and I'm, I know that there's a little nervous laughter here but it's not funny stuff. Oh, yeah. right. I'm laughing all the time because I'm nervous yeah sorry yeah and I'm really sorry about that it's a terrible thing to hear from your mom right I want to say I'm over it, but I don't know if you. If you were over it, then you wouldn't <laughs> have this. You wouldn't have this permission for irritation, right? Yeah, and I, I've, I've even said that in anger to my son that, you know, you're so lucky. My mom was never this nice, and I don't know. That it's not fair to put it on him though. And you said that lucky. to you? <laughs> to my son. Like, something about he wasn't cleaning his toys and everything. Like, oh, you know, you're lucky. When I was a kid, they, they threw out all my toys. And that may be I, a little heavy to put on a five-year-old, Chrissy. Yeah, it is. Like, You know, he doesn't want to see you as human quite yet. Right. Right, because he, humans are fallible and you're in charge of everything. There's a God phase that kids need to have, I think. Well, he said, um, he, like, we were driving, and I was, I yelled at him, and then it, I put him in the car. At one point, every time I was about to have a tamper, I put him in the car, because they'd be in the car seat, so they could listen to music, and I felt like I could calm down, and so then we'd have a quiet drive, and then wherever we got to, if it was a park or something, it kind of, like, ended that anger moment, you know? It was, like, a transition. I think it was more for me. So we're driving, he's quiet and thinking, and then all of a sudden he said, oh, sorry, mommy. I said, why? And he says, I'm sorry that your mom was really mean to you. And I said, she wasn't mean to me. And then I just heard it, and I was like, maybe she was mean to me. Wait, wait, you, felt, hang on, hang on. You said to your son that your, your mom would throw out your toys, and then he says, I'm sorry your mom was mean to you, and you said she wasn't mean to me? yeah. That was just my gut oh, reaction because I didn't know what he was talking about. Actually, he, I said that in the house. You no, know, my no, mom threw no, my no. Oh my God, you are an excuse machine, woman. <sighs> but then, but no, after, no, 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 like no, no, stop, this, stop, said, please, please, please. <laughs> you told stories. No, no, hang on. You told okay. stories to your son that your mother was mean to you. He shows mm -hmm. you empathy, and you deny right. it happened. Yeah. Well, after, like, as soon as I said it, then I realized what was happening. And then, and since then, I think he was the first person to point it out, honestly. And it's so sad because he's so No, little. no, you were the first person to point it out. Okay. Because <laughs> you said my mom would throw out my toys. Right. Hmm. Good for him, though, for giving you some sympathy. And yeah. good for him... It's the brilliance of children, Chrissy. Right. Do you know what he was trying to do? Mm -hmm. So I could be empathetic too. He was trying to stop you from yelling at him. Yeah. And do you know the brilliance of what he did? Yeah. He, after you yelled at him, he extended his heart in love. <laughs> Right. Right? That is not an easy thing to do, right? You ever been yelled at and then said to somebody, I empathize and sympathize with what you went through 30 years ago? 
Have you ever done that as an adult? Uh, in, like in my mind, but I wouldn't. But not for real. Yeah. So your five-year-old son made the connection, made the connection between you yelling at him and your mother yelling at you. Mm-hmm. And he tried to stop you yelling at him by expressing sympathy and empathy for you being yelled at as a child. Mm-hmm. That is freaking genius. He's a genius. <laughs> I think before he You said cannot let him be better than you. You see, you yelled at him. He extended his hand in sympathy. That's better than you treated him. And he's five. The moment, Chrissy, that he thinks that he's more mature than you, the moment that he thinks he's more in control of you than you, the moment that he thinks he's wiser than you, your job as a parent becomes pretty much unbearable. You have to stay ahead of your children, Chrissy, at all times. You cannot be showing them your pettiness. You cannot be showing them your ill temper. You cannot be showing them your immaturity, your self-avoidance, your own being owned by history. You can't do it. It's like there's a commander on a beach on D-Day who all the soldiers look up to and then they see he's peeing himself. When children outgrow their parents, the relationship that should be is done. You have to have a bigger and wiser and deeper heart than your five-year-old. You yelled at him, he gave you sympathy and empathy. And then you denied it. Yeah, in a moment. And did you apologize to him? Yeah, later I did. Okay. Or I apologized to him in a moment. And you did say that he was right? I think in the moment I denied it, but later I... I hugged him and I said, thank you for telling me that. And you're right, yeah. So he's ahead of you here, and he's five. So don't drug him, in my humble opinion. (laughs) And I don't want to do that. Uh, I think that there's no way for him to go to public school and not be drugged, though. So that's another big... uh. So where are we not, like... You're very much sort of in my mind, Chrissy. You're kind of still up here in your head. I'm just wondering where your heart is in this conversation. I can't quite get a mental map. Because <sighs> I keep laughing because I'm nervous. I laugh at, like, when there's an accident and stuff, too. Okay, so in my heart, I, like, love these kids so much. You don't want to look back. You don't want to look back at this time and say, well, sure, you yelled at them a lot. I feel that already, that I'm I'm looking back at every year. Like every year that passes, it feels like it's happening very fast. Well, you are 
to some degree carving them into who they're going to be. Because you say you love them, right? But do you love them enough to not snap at them? That's the real question with regards to love. You know, love is an easy word. Right. But it's in the actions that it manifests, right? Do you love them enough to say, no excuses, no yelling, no snapping, no... Look, it's not like we're always going to be perfectly even-tempered with our kids. And occasionally we can snap at them and occasionally they can snap at... I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, nobody's looking for this you know, pure elven Zen, you know, like Buddhism, everybody's combined. Uh-huh. I mean, there's going to be a little bit of friction from, from time to time, but it's, it should be extraordinarily rare. I feel like when there's that power struggle, I just don't have the tools. Like, I don't know what to do in that situation. And I, right. Well, I you do know what to do in that situation. It's just the wrong thing to do, right? I mean, you, you, you escalate, yeah, you I only become know, more aggressive. I only know the wrong thing to do. Right. <laughs> But here's the thing, you keep doing the wrong thing because you give yourself permission to do the wrong thing, because you kind of have a tool for dealing with that, so you're not looking for other tools, right? Yeah. A blunt instrument. Yeah, so what if you just don't do give yourself permission to do that? Let me tell you a little something that's interesting, I think. They call... This thing, the patriarchy, right? You were a feminist, right? So you've heard of this thing called the patriarchy, yeah. right? The, the, I mean, I don't think I was a full feminist, but I thought, you know, a good woman or, what, I don't know, go to work. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that was. I can tell you what the patriarchy is. I'm, I'm breaking okay. ranks here. I'm not supposed to tell you this, but I'm going <laughs> to tell you what the patriarchy is, Chrissy. Are you ready? <laughs> the patriarchy is what happens when you grow up without excuses. I've never heard that. It's true. You ask just about any man what happened when he did badly as a child, and do you know what he's going to tell you? People said, that sucked. (laughs) That was terrible. That was bad. That was wrong. That was dumb. (laughs) It's like a constant buzzer, just pinball back and forth. Eh, eh, bad, wrong, no, no, right? And no excuses. Do you know, I had, when I was in grade six, I just come to Canada. First I was in grade eight, and then I was put back in grade six. And I was talking in class or something like that. It was ungodly boring. Oh my God, it's so terribly boring. And I was given lines. I was supposed to say, I will not speak in class. And that evening, while playing a sport, I fell and sprained my wrist. I'm left-handed. It was my writing hand. and hurt my right wrist, but really, you know, it was swollen and all that. <laughs> Shouldn't laugh, right? Get me after talking about you. But I went in the next morning, and I couldn't do the lines. My hand was hurting. So I go in to the teacher, and I say to her, she says, where are the lines? I said, look, look at my wrist. I'm left-handed. I couldn't do them. She's like, well, do them tonight then. (laughs) Right? No excuses. Well, I was sitting by a pool in grade seven and pushed a guy into a pool, and the teacher saw, 
and uh, said, well, why did you push him in the pool? I said, well, he, he was trying to push me in the pool. It was like a game. I don't care. I saw you do it. You're in trouble. Right? The, the stupid thing that you hear when you're a kid, which, you know, is not that bad, but why did you do it? Well, they told me to. Really? And if they told you to jump off the CN Tower, would you do that too? Eh. No excuses. You try formulating it as an excuse as a child, as a boy. Oh, as a girl, you're fine. Oh, you, 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 right? But as a girl, as a boy, you try formulating excuses. Eh. Hey, teacher, your school sucks and your class is boring. Eh. No excuses. You get drugs. That is the patriarchy. That's all it is. No excuses. Dog ate my homework. Too bad you get another detention. No excuses. No excuses. And that's the patriarchy. It's all it is. And you have a mother, I'm sorry to say, Chrissy, who, it sounds like to me, is not unfamiliar with the concept of excuses. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think she wrote the book. <laughs> see, see how nice I'm being... <laughs> It's not easy, let me tell you, but I don't have any excuse. So you have received this foggy infection of, I have an excuse. Well, I snapped, but he was doing this, and I am tired, and it is late, and I was up early this morning, and blah, 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 right? So you always will have an excuse in life, you understand. There's always something that you can say, well, here's why I did this. And it gives you this momentary relief, right? But it guarantees repetition. You, Chrissy, are in charge of what you say and do as a mother. You are in charge. I bet you sometimes, and in particular your son, I bet you sometimes your son really annoys you because he can be impulsive, right? You said, he's going to jump on something. He's going to jump off something, right? He could hurt himself, right? Is that what you said? Yes, yes. He's done all Do you know why that bothers you so much, Chrissy? I'm scared, I thought. No. No. Because you are impulsive and you do things that are damaging, which is lose your temper. Right, right. Oh, no, my son is impulsive. He doesn't seem to have enough control over his emotions when he's five. Exactly like me when I'm 30. Boom! Mommy's really angry because you can't keep control of your emotions and you're too impulsive. Thanks, Mom. I think I learned that lesson. Good job. You shouldn't do things that are damaging my son, so I'm going to yell at you, which damages our relationship. You know, most times when people have a reaction to us, they're not... They're not showing us their reaction to ourselves. Sorry, let me say that again. Most times when people have a reaction to us, they're not displaying their reaction to us or their relationship to us. They're displaying their reaction to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. 
everything. You yeah, want I your son so. to restrain his behavior and act in a way that is not dangerous. And you do it by modeling a non-restraint in your own behavior and doing an action which is dangerous, namely yelling at your children. Right. I'm trying to yell at my childhood self. <laughs> that sounds like a DPD. What do you mean? Like, I think I'm... No, it's just that. Like, I see him, and I think, I think, like I, I can no, create no, come a on. person that's, who's that's not just me. just something you read off the back of a book somewhere. Come on, no. are you saying? Are you, Carissa, are you saying that as a child you didn't enjoy doing risky stuff from time to time? I, I was not that personality. You were I not that what? That person, like, no. I oh, was, you didn't do I risky just, stuff. I played it really safe. I saw I had older siblings who were doing bad things and getting yelled at. So I was really. Well, I didn't say bad things. I just said risky things. Well, and did you so do? Did you have elder siblings who would do risky things? Did you have a brother? Yes, I had a yeah. My brother was younger, but my older sisters were doing risky things. They were sneaking out and you know, um, like saying they'll be do one thing and then do something else. So right. I saw them get these negative consequences. So I just always try to just do everything right. <laughs> okay, let me let me picture. Let me let me ask you to picture this, Chrissy. So imagine okay. you're five years old, mm-hmm. and your sister is in the house, and she's doing something risky or something that your mother would be very upset about. And your mother's in the house. How do you feel? Good. Right. There is grave risk when someone's doing something risky, right? And the risk isn't primarily, if I understand this correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, the risk isn't primarily that your sister might hurt yourself. The risk is that your mother will become angry. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. If she, she's going to come out and yell at everybody, why didn't you stop her? Right. So when your son is about to do something risky, if your mother is mentally in the house, how do you feel? Scared. (laughs) And he's got to stop, right? Right. Or there's going to be big trouble. Mm-hmm. So it may not be that you're yelling at your younger self. You might be yelling at your sister for fear of your mother. Okay. <laughs> wow. When your children defy you, when your children disagree with you, when your children won't listen, you probably feel that they must do these things. They must listen. They must obey. They must whatever, right? Uh, I think um, sometimes it's 50-50. Like, sometimes I'm just so tired, I'll just tell them, like, we'll talk about, I don't know. You'll tell them what? I think that's. I think the other problem is because he's so strong-willed that he's like he knows that if he pushes me enough, then I'll give in. So then that kind of also repeats the whole behavior again. So we have more confrontation. Oh, so sometimes you're overly harsh, and other times you fold. Yes, completely. <laughs> What's uh, the uh, most important thing with parenting, here, Chrissy? It actually starts with the first letter of your name. Control. No. Oh. <laughs> No, consistency. Consistency. 
Consistency, right? So if you're too aggressive and then you fold, that's not helpful, right? It's guaranteed to create a situation where you're going to have more of these roller coasters, right? Right. Because if the child can strongly influence your behavior or get you to reverse a position, that's too much power for a child. Okay. Yeah. Right? You know, there's that old, oh, I don't know, it was old when I was young. There's the Sorcerer's Apprentice with Mickey Mouse, you know, where he gets a spell book and it all goes to crap, right? It's too much power for him. If children can get the parents, they can play their parents like a xylophone or like a violin or, (laughs) you know, like a squeeze box, then it's too much power for them, right? Mm -hmm. It's like that uh, Terminator 2. Cool, my my very own Terminator, right? I mean, it's too much power. For a kid, so that's why consistency is so important. That it doesn't give, just doesn't get kids drunk on power they can't handle yet. So if you can handle this kind of stuff, if you can, first of all, I would say you just have to grit your teeth and give yourself the, you know, sit down, apologize to your kids, and say, you know, I am now committing. I'm not yelling at you. I'm not yelling at you. It's not going to happen. And if it does happen, I'm wrong, and you tell me that. You make it a public, you know, all the commitments we intend to break, we keep quiet, right? And if you make that commitment, then I think you can look forward, if you're going to homeschool, you can look forward to it more. And maybe your husband would see better things coming out of the parenting. No, I'm not, and please understand, I'm not saying you're a terrible mom or anything like that. I mean, it's just, this, you know, we all have habits as parents that we need to improve. That's really yeah. all I'm saying. I, I, I'm not trying to, yeah. you know, call down an airstrike on your sense of efficacy as a parent <laughs> or anything like that. I just want to sort of be clear, clear on that, right? So, at the end of the day, like, I can respect that because, you know, if my, I talked to my dad about it. I'm like, why didn't you step in when my mom was screaming at me, right? So... The fact that he's pushing back against homeschooling, I can kind of respect it, right? Right. Now, I do like parental, a parent effectiveness training. I've had an expert or two on the show here. You might want to check out that book. But to me, first and foremost, it just comes from a commitment to you just got to not, 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 not allow that, just not have that be part of your repertoire. And, you know, your sister's advice, treat them like you're not, like they're not your kids, like your baby just anyway, If you were babysitting someone else's kids, you wouldn't be treating them that way, right? So that would be my suggestion. Now, if, you're, if your husband wants to call back in and talk about some of the finances or school stuff, I'd, you know, I'd be certainly happy to entertain that. I hope you guys do all right with the house, but I don't think it's about the money. That's sort of what the whole, I guess, hour and a quarter we've been on has been about. I don't think it's about the money. I think it's about other stuff. And um, if the other stuff is dealt with, if you feel more comfortable being at home and educating your kids and your husband sees that that's more fun and enjoyable for everyone involved, I think that's probably closer to what the real issue is because the finances don't add up. Mm-hmm. Will you keep us uh, posted? Uh, sure. All right. Like by email. <laughs> well, thanks, Tracy. I appreciate that and I uh, look forward to hearing an update. All right, let's move on to the next caller, but thanks again. Thanks. Thank you.
All right, up next we have John. John wrote in and said, I work for a supplier that deals in electronics selling to large manufacturers. Recently this year, I was told by a corporate purchasing manager that there is nothing she can do to maintain our business relationship as my company is not female-owned or classified as a diversity supplier. My work over the past seven years with this customer has produced per capita, the highest volume per line supported and shipped to the customer due to our service, my knowledge of the industry, and expertise, along with my maniacal customer service. My contacts with this company run into the thousands worldwide, and the director who I was speaking with has a great deal of unchecked power. I also believe this female manager, who happens to be working for an American company in another country in North America, whom I've known for 16 years, is finally acting out her own vision of either payback or just implementing a diversity program in the worst-slash-wrong way possible. Another factor to consider is the fact that women in her country have been rather kept down. This company, I believe, is quite wealthy enough to install a new corporate culture as a systems operator could install a new operating system. The company is a technology company, and I have worked with many women over my 23-year career, all of whom are professional and have not harbored the least scrap of negativity towards me and my work, and I assume are assets to their team. This perhaps is the greatest challenge to me in my career. We can always get a new customer, and shame on me for creating and living off a multi-million dollar account, having kept most of my eggs in one basket. Given the circumstances, what are my choices? Stay, network, and fight? Jump to a woman-owned or diversity company and start all over again? Or stay and have my quotes get redirected to new vendors coming on board that fit the diversity bill? What does a man who works for a white male-owned company do when his best Fortune 50 customer says we no longer want to work with you because the company you work for is not classified as a diversity source? That's from John. Hi, John. Uh, I am... It's an enraging and heartbreaking story. I am really angry that it happened, and I'm really sorry that it happened. Uh, Dale, <laughs> uh, thanks for having me on. I've always admired your work and uh, become quite a bit of a rabid fan, but uh, you never think it's going to happen to you when suddenly a table turns and you're you're fighting against an onslaught of uh, of tide that, that uh, basically it's like you're holding a piece of spaghetti against a sword. You don't know how to fight anymore. But uh, well, that's, that's you say, nice. well, I shouldn't have kept all my eggs in one basket, but in a way you weren't because you were doing a great job in, in satisfying what the customer wanted, right? Yeah, you've, uh, you've got a, you, you've got the 80-20 rule. 80% of your time is going to be spent with, with the top 20% of your customers that are keeping you busy. And so you're, you're, you're quite right there. You're, but the uh, you know the the mantra is diversify, diversify, diversify your 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 account portfolio. But when you've been climbing a big mountain all your career, which has been a fantastic one, um, and one I've never been bored of, uh, this has just been, been probably one of the most interesting scenarios that I've been uh, I've been subjected to in in my career. So you said women in her country have been rather kept down. Is that so? She's not from North America. She's not European originally. No, uh, I I would say that. Uh, they are definitely on the rise uh, as far as their numbers uh, that, uh, at this company. I've seen this particular facility open up about 16 years ago in this particular company, uh, country, I should say. And uh, there weren't as many uh, female counterparts, but now it, there there are quite a bit. And yeah, which, uh, wait, sorry, which country would, is she from? Oh, it's in Mexico. So, yeah, it, it, 
it's it's definitely uh, it's been a growth uh, experience, I guess, through this one facility over the years. But you know, when you look at a company that can just install a corporate culture, uh, like 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 I had I had said in the opening, uh, that's that's when they take the needle off the record and say, okay, we're going to do this this way now. Uh, and everybody counts goose steps, much like the James Damore. I, I watched your article. I actually watched your interview with uh, with James, and I found it, you know, strikingly, you know, obviously a very brave individual. Uh, I'm, a, I'm on the on the other side of the fence, but you know, when when you look at uh, having so much success and working with a company, and then they just they just change the corner. Uh, it's it's. I've always been able to diversify and and reinvent my services to to keep to keep things going. But when they preclude you from a court process. See, a, a quote process. Could I trouble uh, you to uh, put your phone on mute, please? I will. Uh, a, 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 quote, a quote process is, is, is more along the lines of inclusion. So you include people into the quote process. So what that, what that does is it invites people to the opportunity to, to quote, and it, it, uh, it gives a greater or a wider you know, swath for a buyer to, to get uh, their, their quotes from and, and, and choose the best product or service or, or delivery or, or, or what have you that's going to match, match that company's demand. And you know, we always call it like the jump ball being on the, the basketball court. And who's gonna, it's got to be a jump ball, level playing field. And we're all expected to be around you know, <laughs> the referee ready to hand up the basketball. And, and wherever the ball lies, the ball lies. And that's sort of like a, a meritocracy. But in this case, we've, we've started to see things just not even get directed to us where uh, you're not even included in the quote process. And, and that's, that's, where, that's where I find it, uh, you know, uh, expansion of a diversity program. Uh, instead of being inclusive, I, I, I see it being uh, exclusive. They're excluding uh, vendors that don't fit the profile that they want. Well, white males, right? <laughs> I guess. I mean, you guess? Tell, tell me where that's not correct. <laughs> Well, well, Asian, you know, maybe comes, maybe East Asian males as well, right? That comes out of fear, Stefan, because obviously the almighty dollar, you know, they're going to point you in the back with that pointy green dollar that needs to go in your bank account to pay the bills to keep things running. But uh, yeah, you, you, you're right. Yeah, you're right. diversity is anti-white male. Diversity is certainly anti-white, but in particular, it's anti-white male. And diversity in academia and in Hollywood and in the mainstream media uh, diversity uh, means anti-conservative. I mean, just so everyone knows what what it actually uh, means. Because, of course, if there was a great Hispanic or, or female-owned or female-Hispanic-owned business, then they wouldn't need these set-asides, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't need all of these diversity rules. They wouldn't need this prop-up, right? You know, it's 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 meant to. They're really intended to give a more equitable opportunity to a small business, who they say would more be more likely to face a social or practical barrier to success, and that's sort of the ideology. And and and, yeah, and no, I, I understand. I, throw that, I mean, it it is. I throw that, I throw that wait, aside. No, I understand. Here, just just for those who don't know how this works, women give or take 50% of the work uh, of the population and therefore women should be 50% of everything 
right? Should be 50% of all uh, uh, CEOs, should be 50% of all um, executives, should be 50% of all politicians. Like, it's just, that's the 50 rule, right? And it's the same thing that if there's a certain proportion of Hispanics or, or Blacks or whatever in a particular geographical area, then that number should be reflected everywhere in all situations, right? And it's a fantasy. Uh, it is not real. It's not true. It doesn't take into account cultural differences, IQ differences, work availability differences, uh, child raising responsibilities. It doesn't take into account breastfeeding. It doesn't like all of these things, right? We we know that, right? So this idea that well, we have to, you know, there's been this unjust focus on white males, and now we need to change the focus to put it on others. Be- I just let the market handle it. That's what needs. Let the market handle it. Let every I mean, the yeah. free market is going to dictate as you know. Yeah. You know, just just one other thing. I, I had heard recently that they were looking for uh, LGBTQ owned businesses in, in in the in our market space, and I started to scratch my head and thinking, you know, in twenty six years that I've been doing this, you know, you, you'll you'll hear uh, an advertisement on a company website. We're a woman owned company. We're a diversity supplier. We're a, a minority owned business. Um, which they're, they're quite common, and, and they participate in government bids, and, and they get set aside business, as you mentioned. But I've never quite heard of an LGBTQ uh, advertised business on their website. People are not just coming out saying, you know, we've, we've got that, you know, the woman-owned seal, the woman-in-business seal. Uh, that's actually a certificate that you can get if you work for a woman-owned business and then a minority-owned business as well, the National Minority Business Council. You can get that certificate as well as a host that you can get. But, you know, I've never seen, hey, you know, we're – we're an LGBTQ, not that they wouldn't be just as effective or, or whatever, but I, I scratch my head. Well, we're, we're looking for suppliers that are LGBTQ. And I, I just thought to myself, you're going to be looking for a needle in a haystack. Not that they don't exist. Maybe they do. Well, I don't know. Now, but I, right. If it's profitable, <laughs> you'll get this uh, threes company situation. But here's the thing, too. So this question of do I then go to a woman-owned or minority-owned business? Well, that would be a front, wouldn't it? I mean, in general, it would be the idea of, well, I'm the competent guy, but I need this woman or this minority in order to get the contract, right? In other words, they're not particularly important to the business, but they're necessary to get in through the door, to get into the RFP process, right? You bring up a good point, because there are so many women-owned businesses that are run by the husband, where the women are, you know, they're supposed to be a 60% active uh, participant in the business for X amount of hours or work hours in any given week period. And and often the, you find them as kind of like the unspoken silent partner where they don't even exist. The husband runs the show and it's just to get that, like you said, foot in the door, which I think is just a self-imposed abuse of the system itself. Well, it is. Um, it's like a, you're a you're a trophy CEO in the same way that I guess maybe some women want to be a trophy wife. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like I mean, you're just a you're just a piece of window dressing in order to fulfill a particular number. I'm sure that happens from time to time in the business world. And of course, you know, women should say no to that. <laughs> no, I'm not going to be a piece of window dressing. I mean, I'm going to go start my own company, and I'm going to be damn good at it. I'm going to compete, and I don't want right. Any of these set-asides or any of these things, right? And I worked for one. Uh, probably one of the greatest experiences of my life was uh, working for a woman-owned business. And 
And uh, she was uh, probably one of the best mentors I've ever had in my in my career, uh, and was the, per, the the driving force and the owner present on board every single day. So, uh, and a, an extremely competent negotiator at that. And uh, so, you know, it's not to not not to say it's not it's not needed because uh, they'll like you said, laissez faire, let the market dictate. They will get hired uh, based on their merit. They will climb the ladders and they will find their places. Uh, but this this. This push seems to be a little bit over the top and uh, causing <laughs> causing separation of, of who we used to do business with to who we want to do business with. I guess that would be the question, right? Well, if the, if the company has shifted its focus away from efficiency and productivity and service to a quota system, they're doomed. Interesting. They're doomed. Now, because they're doomed, they're going to end up going to uh, try and get more and more government contracts, and they're going to start exiting the free market. Slowly but surely, they're going to start exiting the free market. Because the free market is very punishing, very punishing, as you know, on all decisions that aren't centered around profit and efficiency. I got a brother-in-law who can fix that. (laughs) No. That I just want the very best guy to fix it. I don't care who he's related to. Um, but this is why family-owned businesses so often founder in the second or third generation because the chance that the talent flows down the gene pool is not very high. And so, you know, there's that. So, no, and like I remember once interviewing to take over. A guy was running a business and he was um, looking to gear back and to retire. And um, I was put in touch with the guy and we had a bunch of interviews and I examined his business and figured out his model and all of that. And, uh, you know, with the first question when I sat down, it's a, it's a family business. And I said, okay, well, why aren't your sons taking it over? He's like, you hit the nail right on the head, right? That's why I want you to take over the business, right? Because people make decisions like, um, Ivanka, sorry, people make decisions like let's give all of this authority to people who haven't earned it in the free market and it generally goes badly. So you don't want to get involved, I think, in a social justice warrior culture. First of all, you can't win because as a white male, they think you're, in general, they think you're a patriarch, that you're racist, that you're sexist, that you're unjust, that you've, you and your kind have pillaged the planet of all of its resources, right? And so, yeah, they may smile to your face, but they'll probably stab you in the back. You know, it's important to understand when you're in a situation of prejudice against you. And as a white male in this social justice warrior culture, the only protection you have is self-flagellating leftism. Right? That's, that's the only camouflage you have for these predators. That's the price of being involved in that environment. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, they'll, they'll give you prejudice and then they'll give you forgiveness from prejudice, right? Like, uh, well, you're a bourgeois, but if you join the Communist Party and give us your farm, we'll let you live, <laughs> kind of thing, right? Um, so I don't think you want to put yourself in a situation where you're going to be facing direct prejudice against you on a daily basis. That's going to be like uh, mean, that. That'll send your balls down to ball bearings, right? So I don't think uh-huh. that's what you want to do. Do you want to go and have like a diversity front company or diversity company? You know, I don't know. I mean, I can't obviously tell you what to do with your career, and there's lots of complexities involved. 
if you can find a woman you want to work for who's really competent, you know, maybe that would be, if you can still, still do a good job and, and she's great at what she does, then then good. Um, same thing with, you know, diversity or Hispanic company or whatever. But the, the, there will always be a doubt, right? Which is why is, the, why is the woman in charge? This is one of the frustrating things about this kind of stuff is that, you know, the competent minorities, the competent women, they kind of blur in with all of this stuff. It's like affirmative action in school, right? The competent blacks get blurred in with the blacks who are there to fill a quota or the Hispanics or whoever, right? But you know, the Asians who are there are really smart because they get marked down in America at least. So it is, um, it is a challenge. I don't, The many options, the many options or opportunities out there for you to get the work to do the work that you want to do, avoiding this kind of stuff as a whole, John. Ah, uh, you, you know, it's it's become so much more prevalent in the uh, in, in this in this space um, when you know you've got a certain size of a company uh, that you're going to go to, and you know they they have certain specialties and and and. When you're looking at a, at a niche market or a niche technology that you that you supply, you support in a niche service, um, you get relied on for your word of mouth, and 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 you're you know I have legions of people that are that are fighting to 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 utilize our service because we're fast, we're efficient, we help them get their jobs done, um, and and we're relied on. Thankfully, still so, and and you know it's like the Willie Loman in sales. You know you're. You're, you're going to keep your your name. You're, you walk in and everybody knows you. Uh, but when when you, you hit that one office, man, you know, well, thanks for your thanks for your service. Uh, but we're we're going to give this business to Susie now, or uh, you know, uh, you know, you've you've done a great job, and if you've helped us get started, and you know, it's it's like uh, looking. I think I think I heard on one of your shows you were making the same comparison with with children and uh, playing with toys. Uh, you know, a teacher coming over and taking that. Oh, okay, you did a great job with it, and we're going to hand this over to this kid now. It's it's it, it's kind of like you, your thoughts run the gamut of how you can craft your services around to to, to stay on board, to stay relevant, to stay alive. And when that comes to moving to a, a supplier that's going to fit in with the with the you know with the expectation, it's a you, you hopping around is not an option. It's it's a sign of weakness. You you need to be stable. You need to be at a particular company for an extended period of time to show uh, strength, uh, maybe that's maybe that's no longer the case in today's market. Well, there's one way to look at this, John, which may be a bit of a an effort, but could be very productive. Would you say that the mainstream media is fairly corrupt in America? <laughs> oh yes. Now that's a terrible thing, right? Except it's not. Because if the mainstream media were honest, far fewer people would be watching me or listening to us have this conversation, right? There is a great opportunity that is opening up in the tech world. Because the social justice warriors, the leftists, the, the quota people are swarming the big companies, right? Ooh, that's where the money is. That's where the power is. So they're all swarming into those companies. And those companies are succumbing, in general, as a whole, to this. And that's terrible. And, you know, what's happening to you is terrible. And what happens in the mainstream media is terrible. 
But what an opportunity. Because as the big companies get more corrupt and more inefficient as a result of all this political correctness and quota stuff, well, it's like there's the dinosaurs, there's the mammals. The mammals are never going to get ahead. But then this giant meteor falls called Social Justice Warrior Bill. And <laughs> terrible, terrible stuff. But boy, there's a little bit more room for the mammals to grow now, right? Like if academia wasn't so corrupt and leftist, well, let's start, start off early. So for me, right? I mean, if, if academia wasn't so corrupt and leftist, I might have been more tempted by academia. If the art world were not corrupt and leftist, then I would be more tempted. I would have been more tempted by the art world, like I went to the National Theater School and, and so on. And if the business world had its ethical challenges, then, you know, I would have been um, more tempted to, to stay in the business world. If the publishing world had not been so relentlessly leftist, then I would have been more tempted to work. I would have had enough success to keep me working that way in the publishing world. And so I can look, and the, the, if the mainstream media was more honest or remotely honest, then there would be not enough of a demand for what it is that I supply. So I can look at all of this corruption and I can say, well, that's terrible stuff. And it is. But it's a great opportunity as well. Because it's like the movie Titanic. It's a hell of a long time between hitting the iceberg and the last propeller going down. And it's the same thing with these big companies. You know, there are, there are certain types of people, they just... Where the money at? Where's the money at? We're going to go to where the money is. Go to where the money is. Go to where the power is. Someone's created something that's great and beautiful and wonderful. Let's go in and screw it up. And profit thereby. We're not competent, but we're whiny as hell. <laughs> we're not smart, but we're willing to nag relentlessly. <laughs> and so we're going to go in and, you know, this is the great challenge. It's one of the reasons I don't really want to grow that much. <laughs> you know, I want to grow in views. I want to grow in influence. Grow in size? Well, that's challenge. <laughs> the more people who are around, the more cracks in the armor there are for the stuff to get through. So maybe this is an opportunity. This is the, you have yeah. sort of, in a sense, inside information in the potential fall of a big company. Yeah, but that uh, maybe the, the time analogy that you put from hitting the iceberg to actually going down uh, may take uh, the decades <laughs> but uh you know i i do agree with the the dangers in, in these uh these policies taking taking hold and taking over and you know when you're making large financial decisions it's much like the previous caller you know there are no excuses you know uh i, I used to have a boss that said you know there's three i i'll accept three versions uh when you make a bad you know decision that didn't work out so well uh you know you, you have a uh a good decision bad decision or no decision have a have a reason for making each three, each one is acceptable. You can make a bad decision and know you have to make that bad decision. And, but as long as you have a reason for making any of those three choices, he was happy because you, you, you applied some thought process to, 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 to try and create an outcome that was going to be good for the company overall. Um, but uh, And I'll tell you, just uh, so you can put this in context as a whole, people think that the world should be you know, fair and, and nice and everybody should try and get along and, and so on. 
But I think it's really hard to understand the world as it is without understanding that there is a fairly brutal Darwinian struggle for resources going on at all times in society. It's nasty. It's usually underhanded. It's good that it's underhanded in many ways. It's good that it's based on language and manipulation and falsehoods rather than, you know, the femur of a saber-toothed tiger through the eyeball or something. But groups want resources. There is a gene pool that is striving to gain resources. And North America, European countries have a lot of resources. And whatever people can say or, or do or imply or insinuate that gives them access to those resources, they will do it. Because most human beings are amoral resource seekers. They want stuff. They really don't care where it comes from. And if they're not that smart, they really won't even understand that much where it comes from. And so if you want resources and you are not particularly good at getting resources, maybe you're not that smart, maybe you want to have a bunch of kids, which is great, but maybe you're just not that good at getting resources for yourself, so what do you do? Well, you create a system or you advocate for a system where you're going to get those resources anyway. You want a welfare state, boom, you're going to get resources, right? You want a military-industrial complex, you want to go blow people up in foreign lands, boom, you get your resources. You say, ah, men are sexist, so we've got to promote the interests of women. So then you get resources. It's, it's the brutal Darwinian struggle, and ideology is just one of the very many mechanisms that groups have to get those resources. It's no different than bonobos fighting over a fruit tree, which they do, right? If there's some fruit tree or some date tree where it's all in flower, the monkeys fight over it. And the productivity of the working people, the working classes, and I don't mind that, I don't by that mean employees, but whoever works and produces things of value to the world for a living. We are the fruit tree, and everyone's going to fight over us. Everyone's going to fight to get our resources. Socialists want everything that I have, except my job. Because <laughs> then they'd have to work for themselves, right? So if you look at society as a whole, and this is, you know, this is a big challenge for multiculturalism, a big challenge for diversity and so on. If you look at society as a whole, not between countries, within countries, between countries as well, but between countries, everybody knows, state of nature, within countries. It is a brutal Darwinian struggle for the resources of productive people for the most part. So there are the productive people, then everyone who wants the productive people stuff without having to compete or work for them or anything like that. And if you understand that about society, then there's this like click moment where everything just kind of falls into place and it makes sense. Yeah, okay. That's why such and such is happening. Now, people will dress it up in the most pretty and wonderful and lovely and scintillating and Shakespearean phrases, which is just another kind of camouflage, right? The predators, you know, the lion, the tiger in particular hides in the tall grass, right? It needs a camouflage so it can get close enough. And language is the camouflage of these soft predators. And so 
maybe this woman, I don't know her, obviously I'm just hypothesizing, but maybe this woman, she's like, well, I want to get resources for my people, whoever her people happen to be. I want to get resources for my people, so I'm going to go in, I'm going to complain about sexism and racism and injustice, I'm going to nag people and call them bad and sexist and racist and misogynist, and then boom, they're going to give me resources which I can hand out to my people. Look, she's a good hunter. In a purely amoral, grab the resources, she's a fine hunter. She's like one of those centaur-style people who can shoot a bow from the back of a horse (laughs) and hit a target. She's a good hunter. She's come into the uh, company, and she has probably got millions and millions and millions of dollars of resources which she can now hand out to her people, whoever those people are. It may be racial, it may be gender, it may be her town, it may be, right? It's the same thing where you, you get a politician who goes to Washington. He's a hunter. He's going to go get resources from the government and bring them back to his people, in this case, his district. Everyone's a hunter. Now, you either hunt on the free market honestly and openly, or you hunt using government power dishonestly and manipulatively. So right now, you are the prey. And she's just the hunter. She's getting resources for her people. It's not right. It's not just. It's not moral. It's not free. But Darwinianly speaking, biologically speaking, what does that matter? Get the resources. It's like the the third world African governments go get resources. Go call Bono. <laughs> get him to warble on about all of this stuff, right? Go get resources. Go get your foreign aid. Go get your stuff. Go get paid. Go get your resources for your people. Now, of course, if you're a white male and you'd say, well, I'd like to keep some of my resources for my people, please. You Nazi! <laughs> right? Of course. Because How dare you work in the jungle to take care of your family? Yeah. You don't want you don't want the livestock stampeding. You don't want the livestock getting away. You get fenced in by these verbal abusive attacks and, and legal attacks sometimes. You know, you get fenced in and you you're not supposed to have any of your own in-group preferences because if you have your own in-group preferences, if you build a fence against the people stealing your sheep, they don't like that. Right? And if you look at the the cultural civil war, hopefully it stays that way in America. Well, you have a bunch of people, depending on the size and power and redistributive capacity of the state. And they want to get paid. They want their resources. And they sure as hell don't want to have to work for them. And again, poor, rich, some of the middle class as well. It's all over the place. And if Trump comes, like Trump gets his way and, and you know, reduces regulations and, and uh, cuts off the flow of illegal immigration and uh, cuts taxes and more jobs are available. Well, it's going to be tougher for people to justify sitting on their asses and collecting paychecks or collecting welfare or collecting whatever, right? They want their resources. Like union leaders, they sit down with the management. You got two hunting parties, <laughs> just out there like in the jungle and there's a fruit tree 
Now, of course, the genius of capitalism is you don't have to fight over a fruit tree, you can plant more trees. The free market. But that's not where society is, and it's certainly not where it's heading. But if you understand that about society, that it's just a boiling mass of people all trying to get resources for their own people, then it allows you to just put aside all of this other crap that people talk about. And it's all it is, just resource acquisition. And I'm not nihilistic about it because I don't think it's the way it always needs to be, and it's certainly not the way that I operate. But uh, you had a hunter who came in, she kicked you out of your fruit tree because she wants the fruit for her tribe, for her people. And unfortunately, she has the power to do that. So you got to go make your own fruit tree or find something else. But uh, that's my suggestion. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to share some ideas with you. And uh, always been a great fan. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, John. I wish you the very best. Thank you, sir. All right. Up next, we have Neil. Neil wrote in and said, Below I have laid out an argument that the concept of identity is logically invalid or meaningless within the domain of human being. I also have an argument that the contradiction of identity is significant because it sets the conditions necessary for the initiation of violence against people, thus violating the non-aggression principle. And Neil wrote out an entire syllogism on this topic. And how would you like to start, Steph? Would you like to go through the syllogism line by line? Well, let's just, you know, start off. First of all, Neil, thanks for taking the time to put them in syllogisms. We... We go from A to N. So whether we'll get that far or not, we shall see. But I really appreciate you calling in. Oh, it's great to be on. Uh, if you would like, I can uh, give you the gist of the entire argument in less than 90 seconds to start. If you think that Sold would be. to the man on the okay. other end of the line. All right, I'll start my timer. Here we go. All right, so the gist is this. Uh, identity is the perception of our own self-image. It's the most intimate and fundamental construction of the self. When we try to define our identity and ask who or what we are, we come up with countlessly many differentiating traits. Now, if we overlay the distributions of all possible traits, then we can identify the domain of traits which commonality and exclusion are maximized. For people, nothing in the universe can have more in common with a human being than another human. And any domain larger than human starts to introduce ambiguity into the domain. Thus, I argue that humanity is the most accurate and meaningful of all possible domains to identify as. Now, why is this important? It's important because if one's most intimate perception of their self-image is anything but human, then their self-image is something less than human and contradicts their humanity. The consequence of this contradiction of identity is that it establishes the conditions necessary to initiate violence on another person and violate the non-aggression principle. Since human beings only initiate violence on those other than themselves, the perception of ourselves as something less than human creates the other by distinguishing all people who fall outside of your subset. I don't know if that made any sense or not, but uh, maybe it's a place we could start from. Right. So, identity defined as the foundational basis from which one constructs their self-image. Yeah. That's a, see, the thing is, you know, when, when people start off with something quite um, controversial like that, Neil, and then just kind of blow past it, I, my, my, I'm just telling you my spider sense starts to tingle. Like, I'm like, okay, well, what's going on here? Because uh, identity, you say, is like A is A, right? Well, that is, yeah, so... So, so uh, you're, you're taking identity 
and changing the definition or at least creating a very subset of the definition because the identity principle is a rock is a rock. Uh, it's right. one of Aristotle's three laws of, of logic. And you, if you then say, well, I'm going to redefine identity as the foundational basis from which one constructs your self-image, that is a subset of A is A, but I'm not even sure because now we have the verb constructs, right? Which is not part of the identity principle. A rock is a rock, but a, not a, a rock is not constructing its own self-image. So that's where I sort of get a bit confused from the beginning. Okay, so uh, I, I'm trying to to articulate kind of identity as it is used today in the social political arena. Oh, you mean you like know, identity like it, politics kind of thing? Yeah, it's like identity as we see as as it as it's a, a functional thing that we use in our life. That's kind of that's kind of where I'm I'm I'm, I'm trying to I'm, I'm trying to uh, to piece out to flush out that idea of like what are what are people talking about when they're saying oh I identify as this or even just the the statement I am Neil or you know I'm a, a you know my whatever like I'm white or I'm a male or you know any of these quote unquote identities I'm trying to I'm trying to flush out what that uh, functionally uh, means like in and how how we use it today uh so that that's kind of what i'm I'm trying to trying to get at it's it's, it's because it's not something that it is something we construct because i can change how i fu- like who i fundamentally think i am and how i see myself that that innermost no, no, not completely image right? of that well to a certain extent i mean that's what growing up is it's it's about seeing yourself and 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 that as you grow and change you you see and perceive yourself in the world completely differently, you know, every, every day or even multiple times a day. Like, I'm just saying it's a, yeah, no, it's no, something no, but, that but there's no identity. Hang on, hang on. There's no identity politics called maturity or wisdom or personal growth, right? Identity politics is usually racial and gender collectivist concepts that are utilized Correct. for political gain. Correct. So, and, and those for, generally are not, you know, there's some blurry edges, uh, as a whole, but I generally would not be able to pass as Japanese. Correct. Um, would you just so do you think that just because you're a white person that you have to identify as a white person? Is that is that something? Is are you bound to that? Well, no. But if that somebody I, asks me, no. But if somebody asks me my race and gender, I'm going to say I'm a white male. I don't have that absorbed into my definition of myself. Like I don't wake up in the morning, look at my inner forum and say, still white. <laughs> I don't reach down to my nether regions and say, still hanging heavy, still got that big swing castanet set, twigs and berries. So I don't have within my identity um, white male. Uh, now, I so know that you- there are other people who, uh, other groups or other people who do have much more of an embedded identity, uh, I would imagine that's because for them, uh, I, I don't view identity as something, these collectivist identities like race and gender and so on, I don't view them as innate to human beings. I view them as something that is a government program, something that is highly subsidized. So for instance, if you self-identify as X, which we talked about with John recently, uh, another caller on this show, maybe you can get preferential treatment in business. Maybe you can get a student loan. Maybe you can get into college more easily. So you're paid for pursuing this identity, for for accepting and absorbing and checking off the box. You know, there's this Elizabeth Warren question, right? By the way, she's really 
um, quite obsessed with marketing her own knickknacks. You should look that up. It's kind of weird. But there's, she apparently, in, in order to get a job or two, she she marked herself down as, as a Native American or Indigenous American. And it turned out that, you know, she sure as heck doesn't look at that. Oh, high cheekbones. It's like, well, you know, that's a, not quite a genetic test. Um, but why did she mark that down? Well, I would assume that if she's not Native American, she marked it down because it gave her an easier entrance into whatever it was. I think it was to become faculty or whatever it was in, in some university. So that's paying someone to do something. Like, you know, I guess you could pay a woman to identify as your girlfriend for the night, but that doesn't mean she's your girlfriend. It's just what you're paying her to do. And so the identity, I think, in general, uh, is um, developed by government programs uh, and paid for by government programs, with, with this tiny exception that where there are objective and measurable group differences, then those group differences, it would be rational to have as part of your understanding of how the group operates. So it's what I've talked about before, that Chinese people tend to be a little bit shorter in general, and therefore we're less likely to see them in the uh, NBA. It doesn't mean that there can't be wonderful NBA players who are Chinese, but it's less likely if you're going to evaluate differences in statistics as a whole, that can be valuable. But that's more sociological. That's less personal. Because if you are a really great Chinese basketball player, what do you care about the collective? And if you're really short, then of, of any race, then you're less likely to want to play ball, uh, basketball, at least at the professional level. So as far as, you know, I, it costs in general to be a white male these days. The only group that it, is, it costs more in terms of uh, ethnicity is East Asians or Japanese, Chinese and so on, because they're marked down in America and trying to get into universities and so on. So it probably has never struck me as a particularly important part of my identity because I've never been bribed to focus on it. Yeah, so I mean, you said so. What you said that the definition of self is that is that, and uh, I think that's that's if you, if that's a term how you want to define identity, I think that that's 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 fine. That might, was probably a better way of articulating um, that that image. That. But why 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 is self image? So do you mean in terms of identity politics? If that's what you're focusing on, why is self image important? It's a very subjective thing in many ways, right? Yeah, and it, it's something. It's so if if how we see ourselves is something that every individual person has to do, and if racism, sexism, like all all the isms, all the identity politics, if if we've already started uh, down the wrong path at the individual level, how you see yourself. Well, I mean, it makes sense that that. Uh, that socially, those those same missteps and mistakes would perpetuate and you know create the the chaos, which were you know all, all the all the, the all the issues that we're we're having with these things. Um, that's that's kind of why I was starting to to think about um, how we see ourselves. You know, how how do I see myself when I wake up in the morning? You know, what are the things that I'm you know, I associate myself with uh, what am I proud of? You know, what am I, my ego, like all these different, all these different things that whatever it is that makes up me, you know, I, I put those things together and, um, I was just trying to, to, to come in and, and see if there's not something 
two, how if if it's not important to the way in which we classify ourselves or the way in which we see the world, um, that's that's kind of what I was. Do you do you to, have? Um, sorry, to interrupt. But do you have a, a a challenge when it comes to thinking of your own identity? Uh, a challenge? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I must say I don't really think about my identity, um, whether that's a failing or not. I don't know, but I don't really think about my identity. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I'm engaged in a titanic struggle to put out the fires of irrationality that are trying to consume the world. And, you know, when you're battling a forest fire, it doesn't seem to be... Well, battling a forest fire does not seem to be conducive to existential identity questions. It seems to me that there's a certain amount of leisure, maybe even a certain amount of self-indulgence that's necessary in order to think deeply about identity issues. And just, sorry, just by the by, because I wanted to mention this a while back ago. So I was watching my, my daughter and I, this is kind of funny. It's a bit of a tangent, but forgive me. My daughter and I were watching a show about the forest fires that are raging in British Columbia, which is the left coast of uh, Canada. and there was a woman in a, you know, sort of semi-skin-tight dress who was gesturing away at the computer screen and talking about all the forest fires and so on. And she was very pretty and made up nicely, had a nice figure and all of that. And then they cut to these men out there, you know, in the deepening dark with sparks flying through their hair and smoke and heat blowing in their faces, half their beards burnt off as they battle this blaze and so on. And I was like, hey, honey, look, it's like male privilege. She's in an air-conditioned studio in high heels and a dress, and they're out there battling the elements. <laughs> look at all that privilege. Anyway, so I don't think that much about identity. Um, my thought is that uh, if you're busy and doing urgently important things, it seems less likely that you could. And that's why I just was sort of wondering whether you have, uh, whether you think a lot about your identity or whether it kind of seems um, ill-defined in your mind. Uh, well, I I do think a lot about um, identity. I do think, I, I don't know, I, I do my work, I take care of my family, and uh, all the time that I don't, you know, my for my leisure time, I I, I love this stuff. I love thinking. Uh, I love putting together arguments. So that's that's kind of what I do. Um, and are you a white male? Yep, yep. I as as I would as I kind of got to like, I would say that I just so happen to be white. I think when because when I think of myself, and I think about the things that I identify as. Um, or, Historically, like uh, c coming through this, this is why I think that it's. That's why I, the whole concept of identity to me uh, is is kind of meaningless because all I can really identify really as is as a human being. All the things that I might say, like "oh, I'm this, this, that, or that," I mean, these are all subsets of the larger human being. Um, you know. It started with the the question of why do people kind of with the non-aggression principle. So it it makes sense that yeah I don't initiate violence on another, right? If they attack me, I hit them back. That's fine, but it's the initiation that's the the big no-no. But yet constantly throughout history, there's always this initiation of violence on other human beings. So I'm thinking about well well why is that? And well because because of 
you view the other person because because of Darwinian because of Darwinian evolution, isn't it? Well, if we look back as so tribalism, like you go from the single person, people identified as larger and larger groups. You know, yeah, but the, the, tribe, the larger and larger groups are not genetically homogenous, right? So there's there's a particular group, and they have in group preferences for genetic proximity, right? You have a preference for, I would assume, your child over some child on the other side of the world. And so a preference for genetic proximity is the foundation of evolution in many ways, right? If you cared for other people's children more than you cared for your children, you'd be serving their genetic needs, not your own, and those genes would die out, right? So you have to prefer your own genes rather than other people's genes. I'm not talking morally. I'm just talking evolution. This is all across the animal world. So you prefer your own genes. You'll fight for your own tribe, your own tribal genetic structure over another tribe's. And we are all built to do that. And given that throughout the vast majority of human history, it was a zero-sum game, right? If I get the fruit tree, you don't get the fruit tree. If my tribe gets the fruit tree, they kick your tribe out of the fruit tree. The idea of like planting fruit trees and having agriculture and then an industrial revolution, that's a very small part. You know, human history, uh, 150,000 years, it's been 10,000 years since agriculture. So, you know, it's way less than, what, seven and a half percent, right, of human history is to do with, and even then it was like, well, I'll take the land or you'll take the land. The idea of being able to produce a lot of stuff uh, is, is really only 200 years old in the world. So the reason why we initiate force against each other is that resources are very limited throughout most of human history. And if you can take resources from another genetic set and use them to enhance the survival of your genetic set, then your genes are going to flourish. And anybody who didn't do that, their genes died out. So as human beings, we're built to acquire resources, and we can get those through hunting. We can get those through farming more recently. We can get those through production even more recently. Or we can get them by taking stuff from other tribes, other groups. So the initiation of the use of force, I mean, it's, it's a lot like asking, well, why does the lion hunt the zebra? It's like, because that's where the meat is, and that's what it needs to eat. And so human beings, it's, a, it's been a battle throughout human history. Uh, for the acquisition of resources, usually at the expense of another gene set. But we have we have uh, advanced in uh, our social structure, and and how people the, the rallying cry, which what has unified those groups, has not just been the, the genetics or the the preference. I mean, the the separation of church and state. That is, people identify like people used to their their religion. And they said, hey, we're going to put this religion thing aside, and we're going to come together as a nation. But why did they oh. do that? Well, I, I think because the larger and larger, if you can see yourself as part of a larger and larger group, that means that the larger and larger group can, can behave and get, get, you know, cooperate. Well, they did that because free, of a couple, free hundred, no, a couple of hundred years of religious warfare. I mean, there was just so much suffering and society was in danger of collapsing, so they tried something else. I mean, it'd be great, don't get me wrong, uh, it would be great if people listened to reason and proactively made good decisions in society, but, you know, it's a pretty grim constant throughout human history, Neil, that um, it is when there is an unbelievable disaster that threatens to take down an entire civilization. Maybe, just maybe, then people will try something different, but they really have to be on the ropes. And... uh 
that I think was had more to do with the separation of church and state than anything else. I mean, like Marx and Lenin thought that you know the the class the class would be the the, the identifying factor which would you know people would rally behind. It didn't happen, you know. Mussolini said no, but it's the nation. You know, like I I just I, I think it's I think you can look back and you can say that there's some there's some level at which the the object of what brings and kind of structures society can change is is that i don't i don't think that's uh, well, no i mean the class the reason why class failed is it's not a genetic category the reason why nation succeeded is it was i mean well the free trade today day, isn't a now. genetic thing i'm sorry like I'm not genetically related to you, but we still can discuss and we see each other as other people. We still can interact. We can still both mutually benefit from trade. You know, like the I, I don't, I don't quite understand how the genetic thing is supposed to encompass what it is we, how how we organize our social structure in today's world. I'm not saying it's how we should. I'm saying that that tendency is always there. And um, don't get me wrong, I want a race-neutral and gender-neutral state in the same way that people wanted a religion-neutral state. I want the separation of gender and sex and race and ethnicity from the state uh, for, for the same reason that I want a separation of the economy and the state and for the same reason we want a separation of church and state. So I want uh, a state, if there is even going to be one, which I don't want at all, but if there is going to be one, I want it to be agnostic regarding uh, these things. But we do have to understand that the reason why we have to have a separation of church and state is that there is an in-group preference among religions. And if the state controls religious expression, every group will try to use the power of the state to impose its religion on everyone else. Because it's win-lose. If you win, you get a very big religion. If you lose, your religion gets pretty much wiped out. I mean, just ask the Armenians, right? Post-First World War period. And so because we have... In group preferences, because it is a battle for resources based on genetic proximity, that is one of the reasons why we can't have a state that picks favorites among genders or races or ethnicities or religions or anything like that. Because, I mean, it's one thing to have these things competing in uh, a free market, which, you know, I don't think is a huge impact, but it's quite another thing when these identity issues then end up controlling the awesome power of the state then they really go cancerous okay well maybe maybe okay so in terms of like fratricide or if, if i'm to to fight my brother we're genetically come from the same material we're very close there's people i mean and, and people do fight their family you know that initiation of violence against them I would argue is because they fundamentally identify themselves as something other than like that in that family. They say we're not on the same team. So you know, I don't think twice to crush a cockroach. You know, and if I don't think twice to 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 punch my brother, it's because I uh, I have to see him differently. Hang on, first of all, it's very rare, and secondly, how do you know he's your brother? I mean, are you uh, saying that no woman ever slept around throughout history? No woman ever had that, a child outside of a monogamous relationship and tried to pass it off as that guy's kid? Well, I mean, that's that is true. I mean, I, 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 
wouldn't know like that. But oh, it's common. I don't think that that would explain um, every single time. It, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think that that would mean that only family uh, violence is because of that. Wait, I don't, oh, come I don't on, no, Neil, 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 come on, you can't do that to me. Well, you, like when I no, when you, come on, did I say at all that the well, only no, explanation all. for all family violence is that brothers might not be related? You can't, like, if if you're there in your thinking, I don't even want to have a conversation because that's so irrational. Right, so saying here's an explanation as to whether my brothers might fight, that they might suspect that they're not actually brothers, or they might have some sense that they're not actually brothers, and that means that they're more likely to have conflict if there's a preference for genetic proximity and they're not that proximate genetically. And then you're saying so that explains all family violence. Come on, well, I'm, I apologize. Sorry. Okay, I just want to make sure we don't go down that wasted path because I'll never be—I I could live forever and still not want to waste one more minute of my life down that nonsense. Okay. So now I think people can overcome it for sure. I think people can overcome it for sure. My proximity, if this makes any sense, my proximity is not based upon genetics, but based upon values. And I've had tons of conversations with this with just about every race and gender on this show that you can imagine. So for me, I remember having a conversation with a, a black guy some time back. And I remember saying to him, I said, look, you're a great guy. We agree on the free market. We, we enjoy discussing these ideas and we are for the non-aggression principle and peaceful parenting. And I said, so if you move in next door to me as a black guy who believes these things, we are going to be great friends. Whereas if there's some communist white family that moves in, we're going to be not friends, right? So for there, it's not genetic proximity that matters to me. It's value proximity that matters to me. Because my genetics are ideas, right? That's what I'm trying to spread. I'm, I want to be the Genghis Khan of memes. <laughs> Basically, I want to be like giant seed-spraying idea guy who goes out and fertilizes the brain with the content, br brains around the world, millions of brains around the world with the contents of my own mind and replicate that way. A giant philosophy phallus, big dick, rational, spurt, money shot, Molyneux. That's my, <laughs> that's going to be right there on my gravestone. Uh, I only had one child, because started a little late, but FSH, you enemy. So only had one child, but doesn't mean it's the old Mr. Chips thing, right? Mr. Chips was a very influential school master in an old story. And people said, didn't you have any children? He said, I had thousands of them, right? Because he imprinted his thoughts and his minds and his way of doing things on so many children who came through his school. So I am, you know, the master mental money shot, uh, the... <laughs> Spraying across the world forever, uh, attempting to fertilize minds in my own image and the image of philosophy, rash, reason, evidence, and so on. And so I um, identify with ideas, not genetics. And I think that is where society needs to get to. And that's a value. Correct? You're Sorry, are you asking me or telling me? So you... So you're saying that you're able to choose to shape and somehow you can see yourself not from a genetic proximity, like not from a genetic perspective, but from a values perspective. That's true. Now, whether those values are themselves genetic, I don't know. Like if you look at the big five personality traits, and I won't go through them all here. I'm going to do a presentation on it at some point soon. You can look up the big five personality traits. 
they're very genetic. <laughs> I mean, this is very, they're very genetic. And so I don't know whether my mindset has anything to do with my genetics or not. I act as if it doesn't, because I think that's the best way to spread good ideas and good arguments. But um, I identify with values, with philosophy, with reasoned arguments, with evidence. And that's what I'm working to replicate uh, across the world. I'm not doing it genetically by, you know, banging uh, everything that uh, reaches down to tie its shoes, but I'm doing it through the internet. I'm doing it through arguments. I'm doing it through books and podcasts and videos and Twitter and memes. I am replicating like you wouldn't believe. So e even if, even if, so if you're have uh, agency or you don't have agency, you could say that the your quote-unquote identity of the value-based uh, perspective just so happens to be like that. Well, that's I, mean, kind of I, where I would just say that it's either <clears throat> it's it's if I said it's either violence or reason. It's either philosophy or violence. We either have genetic in-group preference, which means violence eventually, or we have values that we fight for. We fight for our genes or we fight for our values. Fighting for genes is usually violent, whether it's overtly violent or covertly violent, like I was talking about with sort of diversity programs and set-asides and welfare states, military-industrial complex. These are all just dishonest and usually immoral ways of getting resources for a particular gene set. And so we either fight for our genetics, which is, takes us back to the swamp, to the prehistory, to the Darwinian struggle of all against all, or we fight for values, which we can do through language, which we can do peacefully, I damn well hope. Well, so I don't really know if we have a, a definition of identity or not. <laughs> um, well, it was definitely we a good shot. I, I appreciate the call in and um, uh, we can have another talk about it at some point. I mean, when I say I my identify as, as values, uh, that that's my identity, I certainly have addition for, and I put forward two definitions as genetic in-group or there's values. Uh, but if we haven't got very far in sort of half an hour, we'll drop our losses and move on, but I really do appreciate the call. Let's move on to the next caller. Uh, thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. All right, up next, we have Steve. Steve wrote in and said, I'm a former anti-fostile anarchist. In 2011, I was part of the Occupy movement, but in 2016, I voted for Trump after a long and difficult intellectual journey from radical leftism to conservatism. My hope now is to help other people trapped in the radical left to dehypnotize themselves. Do you have any thoughts on how to do this or any advice on how to transition back into society? That's from Steve. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? What a journey, my friend. Holy crap and a half. That is like, that's Tell the kind of journey it. that like you get in a Ridley Scott movie when people sleep for three years and wake up on a different planet. That's, that's pretty wild. <laughs> that is pretty wild. So let's start with where you started from, if that's all right. Um, so how did yeah, you get to the Occupy movement? And just before that, you know, I mean, I don't have sort of the knee-jerk reaction to the Occupy movement had some great critiques, some great critiques, some important critiques of 
the money masters in, in on the planet and the 1%. I mean, the 1% who earn their money in the free market, more or less, yeah, no problem, great. But the 1% who earn it because the Fed's lending them money uh, first, that's SCUS, that's SCUS bag 101. So I just wanted to point that out. But so how did you go from childhood to uh, where you were in the Occupy movement? I don't even know where to start. Um, it usually starts with a squirt, if I remember rightly. But anyway, go on. Just kidding. <laughs> well, that took place sometime in around the year 1980. <laughs> I think um, I heard that. Occupy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I joined, I kind of got involved in the anarchist movement, anarchism in particular, and especially, I know you've had, uh, you're a libertarian, you lean in this kind of anarcho-capitalist direction maybe, but I'm talking about communist anarchism. That's, and uh, also about, that's quite a big difference. You know, this is like, that's yeah, like uh, Spain Utterly in 1937 different. anarchy, right? Yes, yes, that's exactly. And in fact... The Spanish anarchists, I mean, if you listen to people who are in the movement talk, there's a big kind of a hagiographic perspective on the Spanish anarchists. And uh, this is getting ahead of things. But one of the things that led me away from the movement was reading more about those anarchists in Spain and discovering, hey, actually, they committed mass murder. They carried out mass rape of nuns. They would um, they would force priests to watch parodies of the mass and then murder them. So anyway, those were the guys that I really looked up to. And that we was, all really uh, looked up to. I'll do a show on this at one point, but yeah, it was the usual freak show of totalitarian mass murdering nightmarishness. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. But so, um, where did I get involved in anarchism though, and in and in communism in general? Because I was a huge fan of Marx too, and we all were. Um, and we, it started, wait, wait, wait. We? Who we? Who we got? Who, who's the we there? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, people who are communist anarchists are often big fans of Marx. The reason is that other than Kropotkin and Bakunin, who are two Russians, uh, anarchist thinkers don't really have their own theory and their own Bible, so they need Marx. They need Marx because he kind of well, he promised it, right? He breaks it down and he makes sense of things. Yeah. He yeah, promised yeah. He promised yeah, a withering away of the state in a stateless society. So if you really want to take a deep hit on the Marxist bong, you can see your way through to uh, anarchism in the afterlife, so to speak. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's, it's kind of funny. If you look at communism and you see it as a parody of Christianity, which it sort of is, anarchism is sort of a parody of Gnosticism and not in the Gnostic Christian movements. But anyway... Um, so I had gotten involved with it early in like uh, I was 17, 18, 19, and I was reading – I was this sorry. sorry to interrupt. So your yeah. family structure? What was your family structure? Oh, mom? interesting question. Very interesting question. Um, I was raised at once by a single mother yeah. but in an extended family context. Right. So I was raised in a house with – Grandparents, mom, um, aunts and uncles who are in who are close in age to me, so they're almost sibling age. Big family, very good in many ways, chaotic in other ways. Um, but where it did, did give you the dad? idea. That, um, my dad, my dad. Where the hell was my dad? My dad was a drug addict, and he was an alcoholic. When I was four years old, he went crazy, and we didn't see much of him after that. Did he go crazy so, from drugs? 
presumably. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, did he have mental health issues before that? Probably, but, you know, the, drugs um, the cocaine didn't help. Yeah, exactly. So was he a drug addict when your mom chose him as the father of her child? It's a very good question, and I kind of thought you would go down that avenue, but I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Well, I'm guessing he wasn't. Guess. Uh, I'm guessing he wasn't an architect. Well, he was very smart. He was a very smart guy. He IQ one sixty kind of guy, you know. And I think, you know, he went to college, and for a while they were actually happy. They had a nice little house in Pennsylvania. It was you know, it was American dream style suburbia, but then I think, again, the warning signs have to have been there the whole time. But what I've gotten, what I've pieced together is that the drinking got worse and worse. Eventually, he moved the family to a slum in- and um, this may be too much information. Uh, but yeah, just leave off the geography, I, just, but I do like the details. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so he moved the family to a slum in a major city. And eventually, eventually, the, his nervous breakdown happened. My mom moved back in with her parents, who had three relatively young children of their own. And we all went from there in the house with three parents, six kids, and a few uh, college-age kids coming in and out from time to time. And what did your mom live on? For a while, she was a waitress. She did get some government assistance. She put herself through school, became a substitute teacher. Eventually, she became a teacher in the Catholic schools and then eventually a public school teacher. So that was, that was the journey. And she didn't make a ton of money to, as a public school teacher, but I remember when she got that job and we suddenly – we weren't getting free lunch at school anymore, and we had Pop-Tarts at home all the time. It felt like being rich kids. So. And did she date again? From time to time. And then, that, uh, and then she stopped doing that. Or she kept it under wraps if she did. Right. And did you, did you ever meet your father again? Yeah, we okay. So we saw him on and off for a couple of years. What, he what would does turn on and off. Off mean how often? On and off, I don't know, once a month maybe. Um, I'm thinking back to when I was very young, right? So the uh, the separation happened when I was four or five. We saw him on and off till I was maybe eight or nine, maybe ten at the most. At which point he kind of he started a new family. We saw him less and less. The last time I saw him, I was 16. We hadn't seen him in a number of years. He came up with his new family. We hung out and spent the afternoon in a bar. In a bar? Um, Didn't he have a drinking problem? Yes. Did he still have a drinking problem? Well, I would think so. Um, I mostly called bullshit I remember on the IQ 160, by the way, but that's, you know, it's very rare for an IQ 160 person to destroy their lives through drugs. You, you get you get the deferral of gratification. You can see the consequences of your actions. They may dabble a little bit, but it's just rare. It's not impossible, but it's rare. Um, I don't know because I've met, I've known many drug addicts and many recovering addicts, and I've known a lot of them that are very smart and that have still nevertheless managed to How go do down a rabbit hole. Because I'm a recovering addict. 
Oh, you yourself are a recovering addict. Okay. Yeah, I'm a, well, call me a recovering alcoholic, but yes, uh, and a, an addict of some of the harder drugs as well. Right. That kind of actually ties in with the anarchism thing. It's extremely common in that scene. And the people who aren't addicted to drugs or to alcohol are very often addicted to rage. And violence, of course. And violence. Right. And violence. And violence, yes. Oh, no, there's a, there's a dopamine hit for some people with violence, as far as I understand it. Like, it's, uh, it can be physically addictive. It's where sadism makes it. That makes sense. And I, I really feel like the... I feel like the sense of the, the rush that you get from that kind of hatred that you direct at everyone else in society, it feels like a drug, and it feels like addiction. Like, knowing it from both angles, I really, really, really... Well, you feel superior, too, right? Like the world is corrupt and you're pure and the world is evil and you're at night in shining armor. My God, it's a rush of power. Oh, yeah. Yes, it's yeah. a rush of power. The regular rules don't apply to you because you're above them. Yeah. Better than them. Yeah. You you steal to survive and you think that makes you better. You Well, property is theft. Why shouldn't I steal, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I know. Oh, if I could count the number of times I've heard that line, yes. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <sighs> So, uh, so where were we? So you're, you have no siblings, is that right? Oh, no, I have a couple of siblings. I have two younger brothers. Two younger brothers? Yes. So I thought your mother, your father, didn't your father go crazy while you were, when you were four? When I was four, yes. So my younger brother, one of them was born, one of them's one year younger than me. The other's three years younger than me. He was born when I was three. And so, so your father was on drugs when your mother was getting pregnant. He must have been, and I, ooh, ooh. You see where I'm going? Yeah, here, he must, brother. Have. Yeah, I do. I see exactly where you're going. Take me there. Um, yeah. What's that? Take me where you are, with the who. Well, I mean, you're pointing out that he was on drugs when she was. When my mom was becoming pregnant with my youngest brother, and you're well, both of them certainly right. But it's you. I don't know. I don't know what it was because the youngest. This, I, these are like these are details, and I, I wonder if anybody who is going to listen to this is following it. But the older two siblings, that's me and middle brother, were born in one place. Uh, which was a relatively nice, relatively stable household, although I know there was a drinking issue. Certainly a drinking issue. Was there a cocaine issue too? An acid? And a, Do you mean and those her parents who had the young kids? No, 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 no. This, oh, is, um, this is my parents living in a stable sort of two-parent uh, house of their own with their two oldest. It was before the youngest was born that we moved to the other place to the bigger city, living in a kind of slum. Um, that's where the third brother was born, in that environment. Right. Although, interestingly enough, since he did not know my father very much at all and has barely seen him, he's probably the most stable out of all of us. He has a very I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, Stephen. Call me a Petit bourgeois, right? Maybe, maybe I am, but I, I go back to the Benjamins. I go back to the money. So your mom yeah. was a waitress before she was on welfare, before she was a teacher. 
your mom was a waitress, your father was a drug addict. How are they having this house? How are they? I mean, my whole life we've grown up wait, so wait, poor. Wait, it was on. all uh, to uh, me. It's all about well, where's the money coming from? So um, I, I, I think the details are getting confused. My mom was not a waitress when I was very young. She was a waitress later when she moved in with my grandparents. When my two, my, my when my mom and my dad lived together in a relatively stable union, they had a house. It was I. I can't give you the details of how much it might have cost, although in that place, property values are very cheap, so who knows. Um, I don't know. My mom didn't work at that time, actually, and my dad did support the family. How? What did he do? For those two or three years. You're not going to believe me. He worked in a greenhouse. Oh, sorry. I should not laugh. I'm going to hell. I'm just telling you, <laughs> I'm, and I should, but the fuck? He worked in a greenhouse. I swear to God. And is this, I is this code for he dealt drugs? I'm, I'm trying to understand no, no, this no, here. No, 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 no. No, it was literally a greenhouse. His uncle owned a greenhouse. He worked in the greenhouse. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. Not, not a grow up. A greenhouse. No, regular old, regular probably old growing flowers for Aunt Mabel greenhouse, you know. And what were your mom's parents like? My mom's parents. Um, my mom's father. Well, they were Catholics. They were they were petit bourgeois, right? They were relatively prominent, but not overly wealthy members of the community where they lived, which is a small town. Um. They had 10 children. Um, my grandfather did many different things, and he was one of these, I don't even know how to describe him. He's a larger-than-life character sometimes. Um, at one point, he had a business, the purpose of which was to get funding for small businesses. At one point, I know he... Uh, hold on a sec, Steve. We just got to wait. You, you just garbled for a second. We just got to wait for the internet to catch up. All right. So just to hang on. Yeah, just to make a note, we switched to a landline because uh, Skype was garbling. So um, sorry about that. We were just picking up that your uh, your grandfather was sort of larger than life character. And one of his jobs was to help secure loans for businesses. Steve, is that right? Yeah, that's um, I think that's what they did. Um, I know they got funding for businesses, loans, grants, probably too. But yeah, from uh, from the government. I don't know. Probably. Um, I was very I was young when they had that office. After that, he did different stuff. Right. Yeah. It probably wouldn't be for the bank because the bank would do it itself, right? Well, you would think, yeah. All right. Now, how do you think they ended up raising a mom who had kids with a drug addict? That seems not overly Catholic to me. Well, it is and it isn't. Um, I'm afraid to share too many of these details. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't don't worry about it then. I don't want you to. I don't want you to put anything at risk. So don't worry. Don't worry about that. If it's any if it's any concern of yours, don't worry about it. Um, okay. But it's a very chaotic. Uh, to some degree, very chaotic beginning, right? For you. To some degree, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And more chaotic. I've learned since I've both gotten away from radicalism 
and gotten away from intoxication, just how chaotic and kind of abnormal it was in some ways. So, yeah. And what do you think were the most chaotic or abnormal aspects? What are the most chaotic or abnormal aspects? I mean, there's abnormal and there's chaotic. Those are kind of two different things. I think that it's actually very good to have access to an extended family. The nuclear family is important, and also it doesn't always work. Sometimes dad's a drug addict, but sometimes dad just gets killed, you know, or 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 sometimes mom gets cancer or something, and it's very good, I think, to have access to this extended family of grandparents, aunts, uncles that can help. Well, the studies and certainly also, support you on that. I mean, studies are very clear that extended family, if it's healthy, is very good. I didn't know that, but that really bears out what I've experienced in my life. And I think that is important. And at the same time, I mean, what's chaotic about it? I mean, I've told you about, you know, my father is a drug addict. He's not a, that was chaotic because that's the first four years of my life. I don't always remember that stuff. I don't have a ton of memories from it, but imagine you're raising your family and you move a whole nother family and you've got two competing groups of children that don't try to get along they don't always get along you've got uh you've got sibling dynamics which clash with parental dynamics and there was you know we fought sometimes that there's there are the ingredients of some chaos there and what about discipline how did that work for you uh, steve well two kinds of discipline kind of the discipline I'll give you. I'll give you one example. My grandmother, you did not cross, and we were very much taught um, old-fashioned manners. The family, when I was young, and there were so many of us, would gather at the table. We would pray before meals. You would ask to be excused, and I remember at times praying a rosary at my grandmother's command after after dinner, the, the group of kids sitting around. Um, as a child, I thought that was very boring. As an adult, I look back and have some gratitude around it. Um, sometimes discipline could be very lax, though. Again, like, my grandparents are there and they're exerting an influence, but they're not the parents. My mom is often not there. She's working. Um, she did the best with the resources she had. She really, really did. And also, it was a difficult situation. And it was... It was difficult. It was not always ideal. Go on. No, that's kind of, that's kind of where I was going with that. I'm kind of... Uh, I'm wondering... Can you tell me a little about where... I think that my background, my family background, affected my later political involvement and a lot of my views in a lot of ways, but I'm sort of wondering where you're going with it and what, what you're thinking at this point. If I sure, can ask yeah. That. No, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm generally, fa I think that people's ideology has a lot to do with their early childhood. It, it's not yeah. always the case, and, and it can certainly switch, but, you know, I, I grew up with a crazy mom. So the fact that I battle hard for rationality, this, these are not new skills for me, right? These are like skills that I developed in the crib, for God's sakes, right? So, 
Um, totally follow you on that, yeah. Yeah, so so striving for rationality, striving for objectivity, there's a reason why I pushed so hard for that, because the alternative was not good, not good at all. And of course, I saw I saw what happened down that tunnel of subjectivity and irrationality and self-indulgence. So I'll tell you what I think, Steve, and it's, yeah. I get to, it's most likely crap, right? So it's most likely crap, and then we'll get more into the journey if you, if you have time. I hope you do, because it's a great conversation. I do, I do, absolutely. But I think, I think a lot of the people who are radicals on the left are white knighting for their single moms. They are making sure that they're sent out, in a sense, by the single moms to terrorize the world into giving them single moms resources through the state. And this is why they hate the free market. And this is why, because the free market would put personal responsibility on irresponsible moms. The free market would require that uh, the moms or, or whoever the dysfunctional parents are actually grow up and exchange value voluntarily in a marketplace. And so I think that a lot of the um, leftist radicals, and look, there are rightist radicals. We'll get to those the next time one of those comes calls in, but we're talking about this particular style now. Yeah. But uh, I, you know, I'm not surprised that your mom got resources from the government through welfare, that she gets resources through the government through being a government teacher. I'm not saying she doesn't work, but there's a lot of benefits and extra goodies that come from the state through that. And if your grandfather got loans for businesses through the government, then his uh, part of his flow through was the government. So when conservatives come along and say, we want a smaller government, we want more community, we want people to take responsibility, we want to cut the welfare state, we want to privatize stuff, I think a lot of people in society really freak the hell out about that and get really scared and angry about that. And I think sometimes they send out their shock troop kids to go and make sure that that kind of privatization, that kind of shrinkage in the size and power of the state and its capacity to redistribute resources to them damn well doesn't happen. That's interesting. I've actually never heard that take on it before. Now I'll have to think about it. From my perspective... Um, I think that there were, my journey to leftism had a couple of components, both related to my upbringing, but not necessarily related to that. Can I share that with you and then get your, uh, get your take? Steve, I am thrilled at everything you want to share. So please help yourself. <laughs> That's awesome. So there's two things. There were two things that really, I think, impacted me. Probably there were a hundred things, but these two are jumping out at me right now. And the first is, whether my dad was all that smart or not, I actually did have a very high IQ. I was one of these kids that was tested and put in the gifted class. And I lived in a place and at a time and in a culture where that wasn't, and I don't mean my family, I mean my peers at the school, the public school, the government school, if you like where that wasn't really respected or was looked down on very strongly. I had to fight a lot when I was a kid. And relatively early on, because it was early on, we can kick around, well, where did you really get that idea? But as far as I knew, Wait, sorry, which an idea? idea I can Oh, the one I'm about to share. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just so, want to make sure again, I didn't miss the on. entire, right? Okay, go ahead. Oh, goodness. No, 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 no. I'm about, I'm going there. Um, so early on, I get this idea. People are picking on me, bullying me, hurting, hurting me for something I can't, I can't really help, you know? 
I'm a smart kid. I'm interested in smart things, books, Star Trek, whatever, you know? And so I identified when I heard, as I thought about it, you do get these ideas from television and so forth. When I heard about other people being mistreated because of things they couldn't help, they were black or they were gay or whatever. I identified really strongly with that. And I remember being a kid and thinking that and thinking that that was, even though racism was common among my peers, I remember thinking that's why I shouldn't be racist because these same kids were coming after me for being a, a nerd in the gifted class. So that was sort of thing one. And then thing two, I talked about growing up and, and we, we've just talked about growing up in an extended family. And yes, there's some, some issues and we can circle back to that, but in some ways it was so good. And I think I got this idea in my head that small communities of people who have common traditions, maybe they care about the land they live on. Maybe they're a little bit closer to nature, that that was a good way of organizing human society. And as far as I knew, that idea was contained in the radical left, right? Because when I was encountering leftism, especially by the most sort of eco-radical strains of anarchism, thinkers like Derek Jensen, groups like Earth First, that's what I saw in them. And it was only much later that I looked more closely into it after a hundred things had happened, and I realized that there is a name for a political belief that we should prioritize smaller groups, customs, traditions, localism, little platoons. And the name is not communism, it's conservatism. <laughs> right. So that's, that's, um, those are two of the major ways that I think that growing up in the place I did the way I did affected that kind of journey. And I think it's also, you know, leftism, it's, it kind of comes at you from a lot of angles. It's sort of presented. I thought it was presented to me. If you care about community, that's a leftist ideal. Right. That's right wingers. Right wingers love corporations <laughs> right. and eight communities. Right. You know, you've heard the refrain a million times, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, no, of, of course. So, and I mean, the, the, the rightist argument or the free market argument is human beings desperately need communities and governments can't provide them. Governments can provide you yeah. resources, but when they provide you resources like money and healthcare and all the stuff of them, free this and free that, it destroys communities because it destroys our, our natural need for each other. Our tribal instincts to have communities gets destroyed when you're given stuff. It's like the work right, ethic is right, destroyed yeah. if you win the lottery kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not an idea I could have interfaced with, God, until the last few years, really. Not until I had to see, I had to see exactly what an absolutely vicious, toxic, abusive hate culture uh, the radical left is. And then I had to really go searching for alternatives. And I had to clear up my own head by ceasing to drink alcohol and to use and how did you, uh, how did other intoxicants. Sorry to interrupt. How did you end up... Uh becoming addicted to, you said mostly booze, but also some drugs? Yeah. I mean, that's a story. And 
that's always a question, right? Is it because you saw your parents doing it? Is it genetic? Is it because you saw the cool kids doing it? You wanted to be cool? Is it because you saw the cool guys on TV doing it? For me, is it all those things? Plus, did I read Jack Kerouac and think he was cool and I wanted to be like him? And did I, you know, admire God, damn other that Hunter S. Thompson? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe it's all of those things. Maybe it's maybe it's some of them and not the others. Maybe it's just one, though I doubt it. Were you hurt in your heart when you drank? Like, were you pursuing pleasure or escaping pain or combat? Oh, it was everything. I loved the taste of alcohol. I didn't... I was always... I'm not this way anymore. Like, I was nervous when we began our conversation today. But I'm able to sort of carry on this interaction. But years ago, and especially when I was younger, I would have needed to be drunk even to talk to you, you know? Because it was very socially awkward for a long time. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't until my late 20s that I became comfortable enough in my own skin to where I could be in a social setting without being drunk. And I also used it to escape from pain. I talked about my grandfather. Earlier when I heard that he was dying, I walked to a store. I bought two forties of Old English and a pack of cigarettes, and I plowed through them as fast as I could. So, yeah, that was that too. What did your mom or your grandparents or extended family, did they know you were being bullied at school, Steve? Oh, they had some idea. And what did they do? Well, my grandfather insisted on calling the police at one point when I was in eighth grade. He said, just call the police and that'll be the end of it. Um, to some extent, it was the end of it, but... Uh, so it was pretty serious that's what stuff I remember. the police were called, right? You know, at that point it was. At that point, yes. I mean, at that point I had, I was 13. I had been in a fight with like 12 people at a at a football game, you know. You're not supposed to fight 12 people. And I didn't start it. They... Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was not an angel. Of any kind, I. None of us were, but, well, that's what was going on then. Right. And did you fight a lot as a teen? What's that? Did you get into a lot of physical fights as a teen? As a teen, the older I got in high school, the less that I fought, and I. <laughs> it's sort of funny because I was thinking about him before our talk. I had a friend, I made a friend when I was 16, 15, 16, and we became closer friends. And he was a coward. He would never fight. And before I, that, that sounds bad, but I didn't know that you could not fight. I didn't know you could just kind of like <laughs> Walk away. away. Wait, that's an option? I didn't see that on the <laughs> I, I no video idea. game command console. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That, that button was not there. Right. Okay, so let me ask you this, just before we get into it. When you think about your, the people that you knew in the left, how many of them do you know who had good relationships with their fathers? It's a great question. And I think, I can't say this with a certainty, but I don't think very many did. And no, I don't think very many did at all. 
and I know, think I know where you're going with that. And I think that there's some truth to it for sure. You know, the state is dead. You know, there's a lot of complex stuff that goes on. Our relationship to political authority is very much in line with often our relationship to more personal authority that we had as children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Let me ask you this. Did your mother ever say, you're better off without your father? Or we're better off without your father? Or did you ever get that impression? I don't think, I don't remember. I honestly don't remember. I, in my view, we were better off without him in particular. And that's why, like, when you when you talk about the issue of single parenthood and single motherhood, I'm with you to a, to a great extent, but not too the full extent because my father was crap and I bet a lot of people's were. And so I see it rather than a problem that we have single mothers. I see it as a tragedy that we have to have single mothers. And I, I wish it weren't the case. I wish that in addition to recognizing the problem that actually does come from many single mothers and single women themselves, I also think it's a problem that so many men fail their children and fail to be men. Wait, but you have, you've given... Dad. Hang on, hang on, hang on, Steve. Yeah. Remember I was talking about the white knighting? This would be an example of that. You have given no agency or responsibility to your mother at all in this entire conversation. Mm. She dated... I don't know, did they get married or were they just together? Oh, no, they were married. Okay. She dated, courted, got engaged to, married, and had three kids that I know of with a guy who was crazy and a drug addict. Does she bear... I mean, he's responsible, although he was an addict, and addicts are less responsible because they're addicted, right? But she was not an addict, and she chose this man to be the father of her children. No agency there. And it doesn't strike me as coincidental, although it may well be, Steve, but it doesn't strike me as coincidental that you think we're better off without my father and society would be better off without the state. <laughs> um. I don't know that I'm with you 100% of the way on this, but that's a very interesting insight and not one that I would have thought of beforehand. To be fair, Steve, I don't know if that's I'm with me 100% on this. It's just a hypothesis. It's a conjecture. It's not even a hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. But you say it's a tragedy like it just happens to women. It doesn't just happen to women. I women target and choose and spread their legs for men. They make choices, right? I mean, you're not so Victorian that you think that women are just leaves on a stream cast. Like, they make choices, right? Yeah, I'm following you. I'm following you, and I am, I'm, I'm following you. I understand, I think, where you're going with it. Because if your mom's a victim, then you're going to be mad at society. If your mom has agency, if your mom made choices, you might be a little more mad at your mom. Which, you know, could, could be considerably more fair in terms of negative impacts on your life. I'm not saying she's a bad person or a bad mom or anything like that. But in terms of these decisions, it's a little bit different now, right? I mean, if your mom's a victim, then someone victimized her and you can get really angry at society. 
if your mom has responsibility, then she made bad decisions and she's not a victim. Now, if she's not a victim, who are you going to get mad at? For the things you legitimately have a reason and right to be mad about in your childhood. That's what now, I mean the by the white knight. Okay, okay, okay. I follow you. And so I think that's a, um, that's a good point. And I don't, it's a little more relevant to me then than to me now. Like right now I'm, I'm not mad at society. You know? I'm a little, I'm angry with myself a little bit. I went down a, a road that was not healthy, to say the least. Um, I'm angry at a lot of things in society. I was very, you know, okay. But you're not angry at your mom. Oh, I didn't say that. I have a, I, I didn't, I didn't say that, but I don't, because I actually am, work. I am very angry with her. Okay. And I'm actually working through that right now with a therapist. That's something that I don't know how much I want to kind of bring out in public. That's No, that's fine. And but, I'm sorry, I should have been more precise. And I should have said, you haven't said you're angry with your mom rather than you're not because you hadn't. But if you're working on it with a therapist, kudos to yeah. you, man. That's very powerful stuff. Yeah, no. And it, it's been difficult. It's come out a lot more in recent months and it has been a challenge. And I plan to continue very much down that road. So what's the view from inside these kinds of groups, right? So obviously they didn't sort of drag you along and say, here, stick a spear in a horse, right? I mean, there was something that, um, I don't know if it's a grooming or there's some transition point from, you know, we really want more localized societies to, you know, let's throw a bottle of urine at a cop. There is. And um, here's what's interesting. There is some of that, what you call grooming. And there's a lot more trying, how do I say this? Let me back up and sort of talk about the structure. Because a lot of people on the right have the idea that groups like Antifa, you know, George Soros turns up with money. He says, I need 50 guys this weekend and 50 guys show up off the labor line. And it's not like that. The sort of social structure of a lot of the left is a scene. Like, a, like an art scene or a music scene. And like in any scene, people are always trying to get to the center and get into the cool kids clique, which is the center. And like in any scene, I mean, what is what are we really talking about is a primate dominance hierarchy. There's no... Leftists love to use the phrase, we have no leaders. We have no leaders means we have no formal leadership structure so the only leadership structure we have is the one that primates naturally default to, which is the hierarchy of a pack of chimpanzees. Everybody knows in every local activist crew who the big guys are. Everybody knows who the cool kids are. They want to be their friends. They want to impress them. It's, it's, it's straight up primate social dynamics, and they get in deeper and deeper and deeper until they are throwing bottles of urine at cops. And that's what makes them cool, because that gives them cred at the next big radical get-together. And those happen regularly all over the country. Are you following? Yep, I am. I am. 
And was there a moment when you got the real willies or was it a slow growth in williness, so to speak? Um, before we talked, I kind of hoped you would ask that and I felt like I would need to have an answer. And I thought back because it was a slow growth, but there were specific incidents. And can I tell you about one of them? Yeah, please. There was a protest in 2010. I have no idea at this point what it was about. Probably, who knows, globalization or something. What? Wasn't was this show in particular? No? Okay. All right. <laughs> not, not, not on that occasion. Okay. I don't know if you were broadcasting in 2010. Oh, yeah. But anyway, so... Uh, so they go down to DC and they get together. Um, what, what happens is that there will be a, a house, like a, a safe house or, or something like that. They'll get together and they have a conversation about what's going to happen at quote, the action unquote, which is the protest. Uh, they discuss something they call redecorating, which means property destruction. <laughs> property destruction does indeed take place. So they think if you give it a code name, then the feds can't get you right? because they don't know what it means. They're stupid. Um, Property disruption does indeed take place. Uh, a, later on, a grand jury is convened, and a friend of mine, a nice guy, little guy, not tough, not big, it's the peanut to talk to the grand jury, who is not investigating Chris with somebody else, but Chris is subpoenaed. Okay? So he goes down to D.C., and he refuses to talk to the grand jury. And what do they do? They put him in jail. That's what they do. This goes on. Until eventually, and there's a lot of support in the city that he comes from initially, because he's, they love to tout grand jury resistors. So initially, they're making a big deal out of it. And eventually, the grand jury threatens him with contempt of court, which carries, um, I think, an 18-month sentence. And somehow, and I don't remember the details, but they were also going to be able to put him in for a year or a year and a half on top of that. So he was going to go to jail for up to three years. And what does he do? He talks to the grand jury. He comes back, and now the support disappears because now the snitch face is plastered all over with information about how he's a snitch, and you should go after him. And that's what they did. They attacked him in the street. They attacked him with bear mace. He, a play of his was being performed at a local pub. They attacked the play. They stole his bike. They made it so that he had to flee town. And you're going to probably say, well, wasn't that enough of a warning that you should get out? And the answer was no. I stayed in for a number of years after that. Well, what did you think that of was the a warning um, sign. Interrupt. What did you think of that process uh, at, the, at the time? So what I thought was that they were wrong to go after that way. But I didn't think, what I did not think was there's something wrong with our entire radical structure and our entire radical culture that it would create that kind of thing that happens all the time. It happens all the time. So, And you, you've seen that because you've seen the way the leftists will tear down somebody. Social justice warriors will swarm on some unsuspecting liberal who said something that was okay to say two years ago, but now it's verboten. And so they swarm them. They do the public apology. It's never good enough. Um, that's what they do. And it wasn't until I saw a few more. Um, I think it was later that year. I saw another one. 
So there was a woman who wrote a book. She's a second-wave feminist, radical communist, not great person in terms of her politics. She wrote a book critical of veganism. And she gave a talk about it at one of these events. They call it an anarchist book fair. It's one of the anarchist get-togethers. What happened to her? Three vegans, all wearing masks, swarm her and hit her in the face with a cream pie laced with cayenne pepper. In other words, they freaking pepper spray a woman for speaking against them in public. And they did this. And she ended up, and what was the news all over the anarchist internet? She had asked the organizers to call the police. And that meant she was a terrible person and had to be purged from the movement. It wasn't terrible to physically assault somebody for disagreeing with you, but it was terrible to call the cops after being physically assaulted. That was a warning sign. Right. Well, and terrifying too, because you it probably feels like acid. You don't know that it's pepper only. Exactly. I think she had an infection, but whatever. You know, she was... They caused her pain, severe pain. And in a way, you know, because they'll go to a protest and then they'll whine about the police pepper spraying them when they're breaking other people's property. But they have no problem doing the same thing to somebody whose only crime was disagreeing with them in public. Right. And when you heard about this incident, was that the, the tripwire or was there more to come? Nope. Oh, there was plenty more to come. I was disturbed. But I blamed that on the vegan anarchists because I couldn't go down the road of, well, maybe all anarchists are wrong. It's just the vegans are their own faction. They don't get it. You know, they're a problem, but, you know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's like the, uh, the, the couple Soviet of bad Union apples arguing, right? Trotsky. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Trotsky is the example too, right? Like he, he went off the grid and ends up with a nice pick through his head in Mexico. So, Exactly, exactly, exactly. And I really think they would be doing that if they weren't constrained by law. But no, um, those kind of things built up over the course of years. And there were a few other things. Do you want me to talk about the other things that led me to question, criticize, and then break with the movement? I assume we're going till dawn, so the answer to that would be yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and interrupt me at any point if you want to hear, if you want to go into details on whatever. Just assume that I'm staring across the table, my hands resting on my chin with rapt attention, barely blinking. I wish you could get the I'm so fascinated face, but you're, everything you're saying is fantastic. So please go on. I'm, I'm visualizing it. You're right here in the apartment with me. So. So that kind of thing happened over and over, though, and still I didn't break from it. And Occupy happened, and I was actually kind of questioning some things prior to Occupy, but the energy of that movement was so exciting. And as you said, there were actually some legitimate and serious complaints and critiques in that movement. Even Steve Bannon has said that. He said, and I didn't know this because at the time, if I had heard of him, it was that he was some monster, but he said, we have to listen to Occupy. But anyway, Occupy was happening. And I was really excited to get involved with it. I went, stayed at Occupy. Um, that's a, I, I occupied in some city. I went back to the city I was living. I got involved there. In the city I was living, um, I have this penchant for missing the big things. 
So the week before I got there, all of my friends in that city had been in a big fight with the police. And man, I wanted to participate in a big fight. But by the time I got there, they were all fought out. And so the the biggest thing that we did when I was there, we had we put a huge American flag in the middle of the street and we had a dance party where we danced all over it and we were wearing masks so they couldn't see us. And eventually we noticed that we were surrounded by police on all four sides and they were all wearing riot gear. So instead of fighting, we, we went away. Later, I was interviewed by people with cameras, actually, and I think that they were from Breitbart, but I don't think I gave them anything interesting enough to use in their Occupy documentary. Um, but that happened, and the thing about Occupy was that it failed, and it fizzled, and I wanted to know why, and so I really started reading. And I was, I had some time on my hands, I was living on a kind of relatively isolated homestead somewhere in the woods, but I had internet access and there's the people that run it are probably not the best, but it's a great resource is Marxists.org. They have all of the writings of every important Marxist in the whole tradition. They have internal communist party documents from Russia and from China and from other locations. And I really started delving into this and really reading Marx, reading Lenin, reading the more obscure figures like Kropotkin, Zinoviev, Kamenev, um, reading the speeches of Stalin, reading Trotsky, reading the letters that the Chinese communists and the Russian communists sent back and forth between them, especially as they were breaking up. And I was reading this stuff, and the other thing that had gone on over the course of years was that the identity politics had gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And I did notice, because it's hard not to notice, that you're being targeted when you are, and I'm a white male, so of course I am. And I noticed a few things delving into these Marxists and these theorists. And the first thing I noticed was that the cliche that communism looks great on paper is utterly wrong. It looks like a catastrophe on paper <laughs> and like a nightmare. I blame the font. <laughs> <laughs> that was the problem. They should have used courier. More wingdings, and we've got it made. <laughs> exactly. But no, it looked terrible. If you read Lenin, this is what he says socialism is. And he says this in an essay entitled, What is to be done? That was written right before the Bolshevik Revolution. He says, after the revolution, the whole society will be organized as one big factory or office. It's like, okay, great. So all of society is Walmart and Sam Walton is dictator. That's <laughs> literally what you want. Right. Holy shit, I didn't know that. I thought we were for something else. And of course, I was a libertarian communist rather than a Leninist. So I could go, oh, scoff, scoff, that's just Lenin. But still, as I read stuff, I started seeing patterns. And what I started seeing was the kind of language and the kind of behavior I'd seen in the anarchist movement and in the radical left as a whole. You can see it all in what happened in Russia between 1917 and, say, 1945. All you've got to do is go into the show trials and remove references to Trotsky and remove references to class and make the whole thing about race, gender, and sexual orientation, and it's happening today. There's, um, you can read, and even Slavoj Zizek, who's a Marxist philosopher, has a good essay on this about the trial, especially of Nikolai Bukharin. And I read that, 
more than once the transcripts of that trial and also Zizek's essay on it because it's so horrifying and it's exactly what they do today. Like, what were those? You remember those guys, the Christakis? Christakis, am I saying that right at Yale? It was the Yale schoolmaster yeah, yeah, and I mean, his wife that they I'm wrote out. I'm not an out. expert on the pronunciation, but I, that probably sounds about right. But yeah, it's those guys. And if you look at that incident, then the mobs that were roused against them and the way that they weren't allowed to say anything that could be accepted in their defense. And then you go and you read the transcript of the trial of Bukharin. It's the same damn thing. It's the exact same thing. The only thing different is some of the language. Leftists don't talk about class anymore because most of them are upper class. <laughs> so they have to talk about other stuff. Right. I saw that over and over. Well, it's 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 ah. still all about just creating these irrevocable and ever escalating differences and oppositions and provoking fights and I mean splitting and yeah the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yes. And then um, there, there were there were many more things, but there's maybe one more big thing that's worth touching on, although it's maybe still controversial, but. Um, I was getting away from my leftist friends. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but that was, was the result of yes. the reading. Was this the first time you'd gone to like the source of and, and really delved deep into the Marxist literature? I delved uh, superficially into the sum of it over the course of years. Like I read the Communist Manifesto, but I hadn't read the critique of the Gossip program, Capital, the the other, the deep Marxist stuff. And I'd read some of Kropotkin because he's this very important thinker in anarchist communism, but I'd never really gone in and read the deep history of the Spanish anarchists, mm. for example. I'd never read Lenin. I'd never read any of these any of these other guys. I certainly had never read the speeches of Joseph Stalin or anything like that. Right, okay. Okay. So the drifting from your leftist friends, was it to do with something in the movement or was it to do with the reading or was it a combo or was there something else? Yeah, there were three things. First, there was backing away from the movement in general as I started to realize that the thing that went wrong was that it was all wrong from the beginning. The second was getting away from my friends in particular because I, I've said this sometimes and it's not true, but it's kind of true. At some point when you're a radical leftist, you hit a point, you're in your late 20s or early 30s, and you've got two choices. You either become a college a college professor or you become a full-time drug dealer. And I wasn't in a position to become either of these things. You know, I uh, got to tell you, much less dangerous to be a drug dealer for society as a whole. <laughs> if I had a choice. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, go on. I could give all of them some advice. Start growing pot. Don't go to... So, and a lot of my friends actually were going down one of these two roads. The uh, Becoming a college professor didn't really seem possible, and I was really alarmed at the way some of my friends were really just becoming full-time criminals. And, you know, another another history that opened my eyes to a lot of stuff was reading and watching the documentary on the weather underground. Mm. Cause that's sort of the, the trajectory that they went down. They're all either in jail or they're in tenure. You know, I got to tell you, Steve, like when I first started reading about that, yeah, it, it, it blew, it was a big, like blow my mind, life changing thing. Like these terrorists 
are now, yeah, they've got tenure, they're professors, they're respected, they publish, they influence the young, and it's like, now, don't get me wrong, people make mistakes, you know, <laughs> like, I'm not saying, oh, you're, yeah, but, you come know, on. But, but, but it's not like they've all said, well, that was the worst thing ever, I can't believe I did that, I'm going to dedicate my life to making sure that never happens again anywhere, some of them never even disavowed. I know, I know, and isn't that insane? Don't you, when you learn that, don't you feel like you've woken up in a madhouse? Uh, absolutely. This was like, it was a. I remember where I was. I was in Phoenix, Arizona. I remember I, I was at a conference and I was reading, and I was just like, "No fucking way!" I'm checking the notes, like, "No, this has got to be a typo." Like I'm reading and I'm reading and I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> well, there's another pill." Sure, wish I'd had to take that one early. <laughs> Christ. That's one that it's going to take some time to swallow, too. And it's, you can't get around it. It's true. And like learning that kind of thing is when you're leftist, you think that you're a rebel, that you're fighting against the dominant culture. You really believe that in your heart of hearts, and then you discover, wait, you are the dominant culture. Mm. You're just its shock through. Nothing says rebellion like tenure. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm right here on like the that. edge where I can't possibly get fired and get summers off. Ooh, do I get a new sabbatical? How lovely for me. Oh, my God. Talk about exploiting the workers, eh? Yeah, right. I want to be paid $175,000 a year for teaching about six or seven hours a week, and I sure want to be paid by the proletariat so I can sit on the beach and write another book no one's going to read. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Exactly what they do. That's they make exactly they it. make the you, you, they make the average capitalist look like <laughs> Engels. Anyway. Oh wait, yeah. no, Engels was Engels an average capitalist. Was no, a capitalist. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, there you go. Um, yeah. So that and it was it was an epiphany around that actually that really kind of shocked my senses. And maybe I'll tell you that, and then we'll we'll go from there because that was really. It was 2012 or 2013. Like I said, I'd been getting away from my friends for these two reasons. One, my reading, and two, they're becoming terrible people. They're good people, some of them in some ways, but no, they're not. Shut up. Um, hey, I like your little golem moment there. That was... <laughs> <laughs> he loves impressive. Right, I'm in here that my head. No, <laughs> the precious wants to hurt us, and it does. So. Anyway, so I encountered from a completely out of left field angle this idea, and it's it's unrelated to it's unrelated to anything else that we've talked about, but it'll only take like a second to introduce it. And it's this practice called resolving binaries, and it's it's a mental practice meant to teach you to think. Whenever you see the news media presenting a story with only two possible sides, you learn each side until you can understand it and articulate its point of view, and then you come up with a third side. And I thought that was really cool, and I wanted to try it. I'm almost afraid to even say what I tried it on, because this is that fear, but I'm going to say it anyway. It was the time of the Trayvon Martin case. And despite shifting away from my friends, and despite shifting away from radicalism, as far as I knew, what had happened in that case was a white male had stalked and murdered a young black man. That was what I knew. That was what I understood. And so it's nerve wracking to talk about. I wanted to see if there was another side, how there could possibly be another side. And so I did. 
And I think you know exactly what I learned. I learned that the stuff that I thought I knew was altogether wrong and that it was being pushed by people in power. I thought, again, that I was a rebel. And finding out that this rebel narrative that I believed in, that I was against power on behalf, it's always on someone else's behalf, isn't it? And so in this case, on behalf of oppressed black people, as it turned out, I was completely wrong. The media was selling me a pack of horse shit. And yes, there were two sides to that story, but my side was completely and totally wrong and built on lies. And the, the, one of the great tragedies there as well, as you know, Steve, is is swallowing the narrative of, you know, white guy. And he was like, they put these little kid photos of him up, like this boy shooting him, you know, it's like the hands up, don't shoot. In order to supposedly protect black people from harm and from being stalked and killed, you create riots, you create the Ferguson effect, cops don't want to go in and police neighborhoods, and you get like horror shows in the inner city where blacks get shot down, innocent blacks, kids. Like in order to supposedly protect from racism, you end up creating like a living hell in a lot of black communities that they don't really have much of a chance to get out of. I know, and I know that somebody is going to hear me say this and call me a fucking Nazi on the internet, but it's true anyway. Like, the details that were pushed by people like Jon Stewart, like 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 the mainstream news media, ABC News, CNN, were all false. Yeah. And, and, and they were a radical left narrative. When I thought the radical left was the guys way out here on the outside fighting against the establishment... Right. And again, no, turns out we're the establishment's idiot shock troops. Yeah, there was uh, one news outlet edited the 911 tape to make uh, uh, George Zimmerman sound like a racist. I know, I heard that. I had no idea that his nose had been broken, yeah. that he had lacerations on the back of his head consistent with his head being bashed against concrete, which is what he said happened. Yeah. No idea that it was a fight, not just a, an execution-style murder. No idea that stand your ground laws were never invoked. No idea about any of this. And and that the he, idea to me, the, the idea of using le, like genuine and legitimate and horrifying black suffering just to milk and destroy communities for votes is to me the most vicious exploitation that has occurred this side of Jim Crow. That's profoundly evil, and it, it really, really is. And it's just like, you say that, and they'll call you a racist. And my, I mean, and you know that, because you deal with it regularly. And I deal with it regularly now, too. And it still never stops shocking me, because it doesn't make any actual rational sense. And in some ways, I'm a lot like you. Things not making sense really bothers me. <laughs> it, it bugs me. It did. Like, uh, there's, there's an old um, joke the comedian used to make about her you know, very fussy, anal, retentive father. He said, if you want to drive, she said, if you want to drive my my father insane, you know, you you Velcro him to a wall and then you just fold up a roadmap the wrong way right there in front of him. <laughs> that's sort of like, <laughs> that's it for me. Like I hear a bad argument. It's like, it can't. It's like, no. there are these photos on the internet of like things that drive OCD people crazy, like the wrong tile is in the wrong place and, you know, something's not aligned <laughs> and so on. And that, that's me looking at it arguments in the world is like, no, can't take it, must fix it, must stop. Your conclusions so. don't follow from your premises, and that's a problem. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So what happened then when you looked into the Zimmerman case, the Trayvon Martin case, 
what happened for well, you then? Was it a moment again, or was it another one of these slow burns? That was at that point. I was near the break. Um, at that point, the break was nearly total. Like that really, really flipped a switch for me. And the way that not just my radical left friends, but my like very nice mainstream liberal friends were all convinced of the left-wing narrative in that case and repeated it. The way that, I mean, Barack Obama could come out and say, Trayvon Martin could have been me. Okay, I appreciate, I really do your sympathy for, uh, for a 15-year-old kid that's struggling, but for God's sake, don't lie about what happened. Don't misrepresent it. It's, it could have been you. Does that mean you were robbing houses like he might have been? And it is, you know, the people who I push back against these lies, partly because they're dangerous lies for everyone, but in particular because they're so destructive for the black community, who I'm really, really sick and tired of people using blacks for political advantage. Uh, I think it is a despicable, despicable way to use an entire community. And I'm willing to be called racist if it pushes back against this narrative that is so harmful to some of the most vulnerable people in society. And if that's the cross you have to bear, that's the cross you have to bear. But I uh, care more about those communities than my reputation among assholes. Yeah, the thing is, it hurts to be called racist, but it hurts to be called racist because you're actually not one. Right. If you were one, then you wouldn't care. You'd say, hell yeah, I'm racist. I know plenty of people that say that. Come yeah. to... to the podunk town where I grew up, I'll find you five of them. We'll be gathered at the bar tonight, you know? But right. anyway, so uh, so that was a big moment. And then there were other big moments that kind of happened. But at, at that point, I was a conservative. And that really... I started reading more from the conservative tradition. Um, conservative, not necessarily libertarian, not the emerging alternative right or new right or whatever you want to call it, but very much the kind of classic Edmund Burke. Uh, I was very taken with G.K. Chesterton. Um, I read uh, what's Christopher Hitchens' brother is Peter Hitchens. Peter, I read right. him and liked him a great deal. Um, I read uh, Kirk's Conservative Mind, and it things started to make sense in a different way. And then in the last few years, things have gotten nuts because what I've seen in the last few years, you know, when I was a kid, I'm young, but I'm not a kid. When I was 19, leftists were people who opposed foreign wars and unaccountable free trade agreements. And now leftists are like, we need more foreign wars, more free trade agreements, and we need to be really afraid of Russia. Like, when the hell did that happen? Oh, it's a funny thing, too. And now, and I'm sorry to interrupt, Steve, but it's a funny thing, too, how... Yeah. Leftists now are creating blacklists for wrongthink after spending, what, 50 years saying yeah. that uh, McCarthyism was a complete nightmare and a moral abomination and a completely destroyed free speech. And it's like, pick one, people, a blacklist, good or bad. Oh, your team blacklist, blacklist. good. Their team blacklist, bad. Okay, no moral high ground. And this is the thing that frustrates me so much, too, is they say this. There's no such thing as truth. We, you know, we follow the Alinsky principles. We don't have any principles, but we know that the right does. We're going to use those principles against them. They openly say, this is what's so frustrating in people who deal with the left. They openly say, no truth, no honor, no dignity, no reality. And then we're surprised when they're two-faced, hypocritical, and manipulative. It's like, that's just what they said they were going to do. 
That's a good point. That's well said. It's still like, it feels like waking up in a madhouse, you know, yeah. like the election in particular, I lost friends over the election. There are people that don't speak to me now because I openly came out and I said, you know what? I voted for Obama. I voted for Jill Stein in 2012 and in 2016, I voted for Trump. And if you want to know why you can talk to me about it. The first response was a guy who had been a good friend. This was on Facebook, of course, um, where all intellectual conversations happen, saying, well, now we're on the opposite side of a war. And then he blocks me. Yeah. Another person does the same thing shortly thereafter. They're and also, you know, on Facebook, people are rarely talking to you. They're usually just playing to the crowd, right? That's true. Or talking to the voices in their head. That's <laughs> right. 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 Which you suddenly become. So, so that's uh, that's kind of the story. Are there uh, anything else? Anything you want to? Oh hell! You yeah. want me to go into more detail on? Now, how far did you go down the sort of non-leftist? And again, I wish there was different language for it, but we'll go with the mainstream definition, Steve. But how far, I mean, did you go Rothbard? Did you go von Mises? Did you go Hayek? I mean, how far did you go into sort of like free market or voluntarist or anarcho-capitalist kind of thought? That's an interesting, I mean, I am, I am on the, on the phone here with Stefan Molyneux, who I think is a well-known libertarian thinker. So I went at least that far. Um, I didn't really... I had known that Hayek was evil, and I read Hayek. I don't think I read the whole thing. I think I might have, you know, that condensed version of, um, what's the big Hayek book, Road to Serfdom? Yeah. I read that. I read, uh, I read more thinkers in the conservative and the traditionalist vein, and I still interface with them more than, more than the libertarian tradition, more than the anarcho-capitalist tradition. Um, I have a bit of an anarcho anything allergy at this point. <laughs> no, I can and understand some that. Some of that is, yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Some of that, that. is trauma, and some, yeah, right. Anarchophobia. Uh, I did read that's Rothbard what you at have. one point, though. Yes, anarchophobia. Yeah. I'm proud to have it be an anarchophobe. Right. Sorry, you were about to say something else. I don't think so. Okay. So trapped in the radical left to dehypnotize themselves. That was just sort of one of the original questions. And it, it's a it's a very, very powerful question. And yeah, there's yeah, a reason yeah. why this big giant moat is trying to be erected around particular thinkers in the world, like this this far right, this alt-right, this this moat of like, oh well that's bad. You can't listen to those people. They're automatically evil, they're automatically wrong, they're automatically bad. And there's a reason for that, which is that I mean, some stuff that the left wants. Well, I want it too. <laughs> you know, I mean, I really, really dislike this, you know, Wall Street hyper stock market driven pseudo economy. It's bullshit and it harms yeah, the it folks is. and it's predatory upon the middle class and it's very predatory upon the poor. I want people to get their goddamn communities back. I hate this isolation and atomization of the welfare state. I think it's, you know, getting stuff is not much. When you lose your soul, you lose your community, you lose your neighborhood, everything is is done from that standpoint. Uh, I really hate this imperialistic stuff, this world policeman bullshit, this uh, 750 military bases around the world. And uh, so there's a lot of stuff that the left have issues with that, like, I'm right there with them in terms of, of goals, you know, 
objectives, probably not so, I mean, I guess tactics, uh, not not so much. So I do, I do think that this polarization of thought is really tragic, where there are people on conservatives say, oh, the radical lefts, they're all, you know, this crazy, and it's like, no, they, they have some, some stuff that's important to talk about. They have some stuff that is important to say. You have in every group there are crazy people. In every group there are a bit there are bad people. I mean, literally, there was the the uh, the um, get together, the the rally in Charlottesville, and this guy plows into the leftist protesters or the counter protesters, and I mean, he's diagnosed schizophrenic. He's on some psychotic meds and uh, antipsychotic meds. I mean, this is you can't judge the movement by that guy, and you can't judge all leftist criticisms of society by, you know, people stabbing horses with sticks. So I do right, think that right, right. there are decent people in almost every movement who want good things, decent things. It's a very much a platitude, but there are things that we can agree on. The question is, what is the ethics of how to achieve it? And what specifically do we want to achieve? Promoting a giant government to take care of corporations when corporations are children of the government is not going to work. And collectivizing all property, having centrally central control of prices and, and the means of production, that's tyranny. Everybody has to recognize that's not the way to go. So I think just making them the pure enemy, um, I, I have been very critical of the left. I've been somewhat less critical of the right, but also I have a bit of a, you know, the right to me has been pretty hard done by and lied about. Uh, and the left has all the power, so I have a bit more of a sympathy for the underdog. And the right is a little bit more original these days. The left seems to be a little bit kind of repeating the same chants and platitudes, you know, hey, hey, ho, ho. No, no, this is not <laughs> this is not a syllogism. So I think that if they want good things and they have bad information, then I think we solve that by giving them better information. If they want bad things and they need an ideological cover, like if they're just, they're mean, they're sadist, they're violent, they're brutal, they're traumatized, they're addicted, they're criminals, but they don't want to look in the mirror and see a criminal, they want to see a freedom fighter for the underclass, you know, then they want to put on this superhero cape of bullshit in order to cover up a merely sadistic or psychopathic or sociopathic or criminal nature. Well, there's nothing we can do with those people, I think, because they don't want what we want. They don't want what decent people want. They want what they want is at the expense of decent people. So um, I do think that there's ways to get out of it. But what I do want to know, this is sort of the the, the most essential mm-hmm. question, which I think is is right at the heart of how to undo this stuff, Steve. Help me yeah, understand, yeah. help my listeners understand, please, what are the arguments that are used? What is the ideology that is deployed to justify the violence, to remove the restraint or the necessity for discourse? How is that justified? What is said to make that okay? Or good? There are a number of things that are said, but it really, it makes so little sense. It's not violence when it's property destruction is one of the things. Violence can only flow down the hierarchy, so violence that flows up the hierarchy is okay. It's the same way that they'll say a black person cannot be racist or a woman cannot be sexist because... Racism and sexism are only about power, blah, 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 blah. You know the... Uh, you yeah, know so the if, if, a, if a slave is... They is, deploy those same ideas. Sorry, yeah. if, a, if a slave is sawing off his manacles, it's destroying property, but it's perfectly just because the manacles are a form of theft. That's good, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you hear that kind of thing. And, I mean, lately what you hear is Nazi, 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 Nazi. 
And if, I wish that it was more coherent than that, but it's not. That's why I'm... One of the things I was thinking about when you were talking, like leftists that one could... Do you know, I listened to Ann Coulter, who's someone who I would have I thought was a demon. I listened to her the other day, and she said, what I want is fewer terrible free trade agreements and no new foreign wars and taxing Wall Street. And I, I was like, Wait, what the hell? That's what Ann Coulter wants? Like, even still, that can shock me. Um, and that's the kind of, where I'm going with this is that's the kind of thing I heard from Donald Trump. From my old-fashioned left-wing perspective, Donald Trump was well to Hillary Clinton's left. And I could not convince a single person of this. I could not, like, Hillary, you had a guy on your show who talked about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East in wars that Hillary Clinton helped create. Donald Trump didn't help create them. Right. Hillary Clinton helped start wars in Libya, Syria, Iraq. If you want fewer wars, therefore, maybe you don't vote for the lady that keeps starting wars even after they turn into disasters. And I've tried to say that, and it's like it just it bounces off a wall. Right. And I, I can't figure out how I can't figure out how you get through that. Or if you um if you care about the wages of the poor, then massive hyper subsidized immigration uh, is bad, particularly for blacks and Hispanics, is bad for uh, the poor. And uh, if you want better schools for the poor, then maybe uh, more privatization, more parental choice, or school vouchers, or something like that. If you have a goal to help people then you should keep trying different things to help them. But if your goal is to just do those things, to, to have power, to control the education of the kids, or to you basically hold the kids hostage so you can deliver union money to the Democrat Party, if your goal is simply to serve the powers that be, you can't help those people because there's no goal that you share. If they genuinely do want to help the poor, if they do want to help inner city communities, if they do want to help raise the wages of the unskilled in society, then you can show them a different way. And I think trying to figure out, and I don't have any magic wand for that, but in general, if like if, if you and I are walking in the woods and I say, I really, really want to go north, right? And we're walking for a while and you start to get a little uneasy. You take out your compass and you say, well, actually, we're heading south. But I still keep walking in that direction even after you show me the compass. Then clearly I don't want to go north. I just said that in order to – for some other reason, right? So when you provide keep people counter-information when they say they want a particular goal, when you provide people counter-information and they completely discard it, it's because they don't want the goal they say they do. If that makes sense, like if you can prove to me that I'm no, working it, south it does, when I want to uh, go north, and I and then I change my direction, then clearly I do want to go north. Yeah, you know, you had um, I think you've had him on a couple of times, but you've had Jordan Peterson on, and some, and he said something to that effect, where if people are doing something and it keeps causing results that are terrible, and you can't figure out why, what their motives are, you infer the motive from the results. And I listened to that. I listened to him say that in one of his talks. And I listened to the show about Christian genocide in the Middle East. And even that was an eye-opener. It's like, oh, maybe if you can't figure out why Hillary Clinton keeps causing wars when each one is a disaster, maybe she's trying to cause the disaster. Maybe not. Maybe she's stupid. But maybe she's evil. You see what I'm saying? No, no, I, I completely uh, understand. And particularly when the disasters have come to light and there's no reassessment, 
then that to me is sort of the nail in the coffin of my judgment of someone. Because you could right. say, well, ahead right. of time, well, they, they had the very best of intentions. And, you know, I care, I guess, more about intention than, say, director X, director Comey does. But once the data is in, like, to me, it's one thing to be a communist in 1915. It's quite another thing to be a communist in 2017. You know, we got right, a century right, of right. data. This is not, you know, the, the, there's something wrong there. <laughs> something did not, and it's not we just where we just need slightly better out. people, or we need to try it in a different climate, or we need to try it with a different race, or we need to try it, like, come on. So there are people, I think, who, you know, just want to watch the world burn. And they're full of, you know, violent and destructive impulses. They're full of self-hatred. And they're usually driven by alter egos from other people, which is why I was sort of talking about that that some of these radicals may be hit squads send out to make sure mommy keeps getting her gravy train coming in from the state. But um, mm-hmm. there are people who genuinely want good things and have been given bad information. And when they're given better information, it may take a while. I mean, you know, very few people change on a dime. But there is a curiosity. And, of course, you would be one of those people, right? Because you wanted good things. The movement that you were in proved not only unable to deliver them, but seemed to be heading in the wrong direction completely. And when you brought up reasonable arguments against particular positions, well, I guess you'd seen what happened to some people ahead of time, uh, you know, with the cream pies and pepper uh, in, in the face and all of that. And you wanted good things for the world, you recognize that the path that you were on wasn't going to get you there, it was taken in the opposite direction, so you changed course. There are a number of people out there who will do that, and what that will do, it will do if we can sort of rescue people from this bad path. And, you know, I want to reinforce to people who are leftists who are listening to this and watching this, first of all, thank you. I mean, this is hard to listen to a lot of people for a lot of people. But the purpose then is not to join Steve or, or me or conservatives. It's to think for yourself, right? To, to evaluate your data. Yes, yes, to, yes. Yeah, evaluate your data. Please, please. The opposite of one gang is not another gang. <laughs> the opposite of the left is not the right. The opposite of the right is not the left. The opposite of both of these is thinking for yourself. And you don't want to take anyone as an authority. You don't want to accept everyone's say-so uh, because of charisma or humor or reputation. You you must get the data and and think for yourself. Because if we can get more people out of the radical left, then the more feral nature of those who remain will become more and more evident. And I think that's really the only way to discredit some of the more extreme elements. That's a great point. And can I, um, can I put a suggestion to you and get your take on it? Sure. So, I mean, and what, one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you, and I was terrified to talk to you, and I still am a little terrified, but that's okay, um, was in the hopes that somebody else who's in, caught up in that culture, and maybe they've seen where it can go wrong, maybe they can hear my experience, maybe they can learn from it, and maybe they can make that tr- transition too. And again, it doesn't have to be a transition to being a conservative. I certainly don't want a world full of Steve clones. The world, I don't think, could handle it. But to become who they are rather than who than the culture that they've gotten caught up in. And I was really, I just really hope that that's possible for some people. And here's the thing. Over the last few years, I've collected a very small but real number of other people who have made that journey from radical left to uh 
One was an anarchist in my own hometown, and now she's a conservative. She's an Eastern Orthodox Christian, very active in her church, and much happier about her life. One was a radical transgender activist who, and this will be controversial, but it's true anyway, feels like they were caught up in a cult and is detransitioning. One is a close friend of mine. And I have this idea, and I don't know what it looks like yet, but if there was somewhere, a book, a blog, a website, something, where people who are in radicalism and questioning it, or they're they're detransitioning themselves, and suddenly they're waking up into a world gone mad, they're finding that they don't have any friends anymore, and they don't know what to do, something that they could look at, and they could see... They could hear or read about the journeys that others of us have gone down, how it's worked out for us, and get some inspiration and some hope and some ideas from that. Do you think that that's a, do you follow what I'm saying? Do you think that there's a possibility oh, there? Absolutely. And, you know, the first thing that pops into my mind, Steve, is you interview people and you put a transcription of the interview together and you put it out as a book. That's the quickest That's and easiest idea. way to get the message out. And I do think the time is of the essence in these ever-escalating cultural war. I think so, too. That's why I was very keen to talk with you, because I think it's urgent, right? Yeah. And there might be people getting caught up on the radical right that might be helped, too. But you know, oh, we haven't talked about them today. We should we should mention that as well, you know, in the interest of fairness, that there are people yeah. who are, would, would be traditionally called on the extreme right who are also getting swept up in horrible politics and potential justifications for violence and hatred and, you know, the, the, the same. I mean, we, we're looking at the most obvious group. My concern, of course, is that the one group is going to provoke the other group, which justifies neither of them. But it could help people who are on fringes of, of every political spectrum where they have abandoned restraint, reason, and morality, and they're acting like they're in a civil war, which if you keep doing long enough, might become true. Exactly. And that's kind of a terrifying thought. Look at modern civil wars. It's not two armies meet in a field somewhere. Our civil war in America was bloody, very bloody, but it was decent compared to what they're dealing with in Syria. You know, this idea of non-combatants, that doesn't exist anymore so much. It's you can romanticize the revolution all you like, but in real life, that means roadside bombs between New York and D.C. It means dying of starvation in Philadelphia or San Francisco, you know? It means somebody sabotaging the power grid and the lights and the refrigerators going out across 10 million homes. Uh, this is very, exactly. very serious stuff that is occurring. And the potential for escalation and... I wish there was a nicer way to put it, uh, and this is not a I mean, radical depopulation uh, in a very final way. Uh, the the, uh, the possibilities and the stakes are enormously high. Uh, we've never had, to my knowledge, there's never been this kind of open provocation to civil war in a nuclear power, or certainly not in a power that has this capacity for surveillance and drone strikes and satellites. And, you know, we really, really don't want to go down that road. Even the people who think they love violence won't love that much and uh, that much violence. Uh, People don't know what they're getting into. I don't either. I just know it's going to be worse than anything that's been seen before in human history. So uh, that's another reason why I wanted to spend a lot of time on this conversation. And if you wanted to put something like that together, um, you know, certainly keep us apprised and, and whatever 
I can do to help uh, get the word out, I would be uh, I would be happy to do. But um, especially because you know <clears throat> we do have this mainstream media, and I guess as a as a former radical, you must see this more clearly than everyone, Steve. It's just you know you turn on the news or you turn on CNN, you turn on other places. And you see this this provocation and this polarization and this escalation. Provocation is exactly the word I would use. It's shocking and it's so blatant. And it's on the news. It's in the the fictional media too. It's in the movies. It's on the TV shows. Um, racial violence, gender stuff. Well. Keep a surprise at that. I really, really want to thank you for, you know, I, I don't think people who've not been around any of these more radical organizations, I don't think that they know just how courageous Steve has been in talking about this. And uh, obviously, we'll give you a chance to listen to this. Um, but uh, it, it is a brave thing to be doing because there are uh, there is blowback involved in this, which I'm sensitive to and, and aware of. And uh, I really, really I want know. to thank you for your courage in talking about this. I think it's fantastic and, and a great good that you could do for the world. I appreciate your trust in using this, using Freedom Main Radio as a platform to get this message out. We will uh, push this conversation uh, hard out there, and um, we will um, look forward to people's feedback, and uh, let's, let's cool our jets, everyone. We are not at all in a place where we have to go to bricks. We are in a place where we can still solve things through words. We're in a place where we can still get what we want to achieve a decent society through language and debate. We are not there yet because once we get there, it really, really becomes virtually impossible to turn it around. That stuff plays out in ways that we can't even imagine. And whatever we can imagine, it's going to be a hundred times worse. So thanks, Steve, so much for a very, very powerful call. Thanks everyone so much for calling in. Always a great pleasure and a privilege to talk to uh, everyone out there. Uh, please follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Don't forget to subscribe, to to donate, to help out the show at um, uh, freedomainradio.com slash donate. And uh, I appreciate everyone's time and support. Let's keep it peaceful. Let's keep it real. Let's keep it rational. Stefan Molyneux for Freedom Main Radio.